It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Echo. Welcome back to Sonic Echo, where we feature the very best in old-time radio. As we continue this season's exploration down the mean streets of noir, hard-boiled detectives, and possibly other crime shows. I'm Lothar Tuppen, and with me are my amigos, Jeffrey Billard. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty good, baby. (laughs) Excellent. And how about you, Jack Ward, my other brother? Straight down the line. (laughs) Straight down the line. (laughs) Yes. For those of you that might be picking up on it, uh, we are going to be dealing with Double Indemnity today, the Lux Radio Theater um, version of that that stars Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And I think this is a one of the reasons I wanted to bring it is not only is it the one of the quintessential non-detective related noir stories in three different mediums, a media, a um, novel, a you know, fantastic film radio shows and then remakes over the years. But we're also seeing that while there's an obvious overlap between hard-boiled detectives and noir, um, there can be a clear difference, but this one's going to be interesting. And then in double indemnity, we get hard-boiled noir without a detective. And before we uh, start getting ready to talk about the show, I was wondering since last um, month's show, where are you guys thinking about noir hard-boiled definitions because i think that this is going to be something we continue to explore through the season we're probably going to have individually different definitions amongst ourselves different definitions and then by the end of the series who knows where it's going to be because it's a very mercurial and uh, dynamic subject oh i'm still trying to figure it all out myself um you know i I know some of the tenets of, of noir and the detectives and the narration and and all of that but i i'm I've read some stuff on it and I've talked to you guys about it and, and uh, I'm learning. So it's, it's kind of fun just kind of going and, and being the person who's like the, uh, hmm, that's interesting. Um, uh, so I, I really haven't, I really don't have any clear cut definition, uh, for you. I'm just kind of enjoying the ride here. Right on. <laughs> what about you, Jack? I, uh, started to do a deep dive just a couple of months ago when we started thinking about this. And so uh, under your recommendation, I also subscribed to Out of the Past and have been listening to show after show and kind of re-listened to their version of Double Indemnity. Now they're doing the movies, of course, right? But mm-hmm. uh, it was still, it's it's really instructive. I still think, um, and I think we discussed about this last time, I still think there's something involved in noir being really involved in in character-based storytelling and um i think that there's i think we're going to find more about that and that while the plots can be really intricate and sometimes often confusing the center focal aspects are the are the conflicts between the characters and i'm finding that that's that's some of the things that i've noticed maybe we'll find entirely differently but that's what i've been noticing as i go through this 
Actually, that's a perfect segue to a quote that I wanted to uh, get into about the origin of the term hard-boiled, and it, and it contrasts a little bit with noir because it, it reinforces exactly what you were just saying about character point. And this is coming from um, the book Noir Fiction, Dark Highways so by Paul Duncan, where he kind of analyzes a lot of the, the literature part. But I thought it was very interesting because we use the term hard-boiled, but it's like, where did that first start getting used? And he did a little research on that, and he said, the word hard-boiled first appeared in cooking recipes of the 1730s to refer to hard-boiled eggs. Mark Twain used it in 1886 to refer to rigid grammatical rules, and by 1903, it was used to mean hard or stiff clothing such as the hat of a cowboy or the suits of traveling salesmen. By the end of World War I, it was commonly used to describe a rigid person, one who would not take a chance or relax a rule. It soon came to mean a person who was cynical, stoic, and emotionally untouchable. The antithesis of noir characters who are in constant pain and will tell the reader about it at the drop of a hat, hard-boiled or not. And that kind of talks a little bit about the um, the difference between the two and also just how like noir really is about the emotion and, and the, the fall into darkness and those tragic qualities that we're going to see a little bit in Double Indemnity. It's interesting, though, too, and I, I, I think that's brilliant, by the way. I love that uh, definition. But when you're talking about the emotion, it's interesting how emotionless the characters are when they're describing their emotions. You know what I mean? There are explosions, but it's, they're often sort of reported quickly as matter-of-factly. Like, yeah, she broke my heart, destroyed my life. Let's move on. You know what I mean? Like, you know, what, yes. what more do you want me to say kind of thing? And I find that that's part of the, the, the hard-boiled style as well, right? Yes, and that, that's definitely the hard-boiled noir. Because when, we're get, when we get into Cornell Woolrich, we're going to get mm-hmm. into full-blown melodrama. Hmm, we're going right. to get into people emoting all over the place. This is where that overlap of the hard-boiled language with noir is this kind of now neighborhood that we're in for this episode. Gotcha. And so, like, it's interesting how... Hard-boiled strikes me as being, like, tough-skinned, but yep. uh, tough-skinned in, in the way that it's, if, if you get actually puncture it, they'll shatter. You know, it's an eggshell kind of thing, right? So, Yeah, because it's interesting. We say that, Jack, because, like, I, I just thought of Chinatown when you said that, you know, at the end of Chinatown, you know, doesn't he say, uh, yeah, I'll see you when you get out, toots, or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? There's no mm-hmm. yep. the, the connection. There's no like, it's like, Hey, you know? Um, so it's, it's interesting. It, you know, it's interesting in, in, uh, how uh, the, the, you know, relationships between the men and the women are in these noir stories. You know, it's interesting also because we're getting at this time period where the whole, 20 to 27 had a whole lot of changes going on. And some of these things we might bring up uh, at various points in the, in this in the season and um one very specific event we'll talk about when we come on the other side of um double indemnity because i don't want the uh, real world event to uh, give away spoilers from the from the show but we're dealing with depression we're also dealing with changes and stuff we've got jack london we've got john steinbeck mm-hmm. we've got all these different writers hemingway that are all doing their own kind of thing that is not exactly hard-boiled but it is a similar emergent parallel evolution of the language and um we then get into how those things are starting to re- reflect different worldviews. And that's an interesting thing in that, you know, the hard-boiled, as we talked a little bit about the detective stories, we still have a PI protagonist where things can be made right. There's an escapist optimism that, hey, there's a hero, he can actually save the day. But 
And this is, uh, to me, one of the big differences between the hard-boiled detective and the black novel, whether it has hard-boiled language in it or not, is um, this uh, one quote from Derek Raymond. There is nothing escapist about the black novel, whatever. The writer cannot even escape himself in it. The black novel is the novel in which escape is shut off. And Mm. that, I think, is interesting in that, um, to bring up one more philosophical aspect is... Two quotes, uh, one by Zadie Smith. Are you guys familiar with her? No. No, she's a, she's, she's an African American, um, author who has won lots of awards and done lots of speaking. And, and she's, she's, you know, pretty amazing from, um, you know, what people think. I've only read a little bit of her stuff, but I do like it. But I like this quote is the goal of a novel should not be to tell you how the characters feel, but to tell you how the world works. And that, Hmm. if we extend it to any art form, ties in with another quote, again, by Derek Raymond. Why do people write books? The error has crept in that the reason is to tell a story, whereas anyone who has read real literature knows perfectly well that the reason is also to try as well as the author can to tell the truth. And that's where I think we get in noir versus hard-boiled detectives a very different view of the world. A very mm-hmm. different view of what exactly are they trying to say about the reality of the world as they see it. And that's where right. we're going to get into Double Indemnity by um, James N. Kane, who was the original uh, author of it. But this particular show is interesting also in that it was written by – the script was written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Just can't escape him, can we? <laughs> you can't escape Chandler, right. You know, And the thing that's interesting about that is that there are basically – four people that are considered the progenitors of the hard-boiled language. One is uh, Carol John Daly, who created the character Race Williams. Are you guys familiar with him at all? No. Yes. Race Williams is a really early, uh, in some ways, he's very much like Mike Hammer. Uh, There was a point to where, uh, actually, uh, Carol John Daly considered uh, Spillane to almost be like ripping him off. At one point, Spillane wrote him a fan letter, and uh, uh, Daly's agent or lawyer or whatever said, Hey, we need to sue this guy. He's a, uh, you know, he's obviously copying you and even sort of admits that you inspired him and, and daily fired that person and said, I haven't gotten fan letters in years. I'm <laughs> certainly not going to sue the first person who's written me one in decades, you know? <laughs> so just to keep in mind, uh-huh. Carol is a, is a man there for folks. Yes, it it's is. one of the, yes. one of the rare Carol's that are uh, two R's yep. and two L's, right? If I remember yep. correctly. Exactly. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And so he's a little bit less known, especially because he wrote just basically detective fiction. He didn't go into noir, so he's not really covered in a lot of the analyses of, of noir. But so we got Carol John Daly. Then we've got Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and now James M. Cain. Uh, have you guys read much Cain before? No. no, I have not read Kane. No, he's interesting. Again, he had the three main novels um, that were turned into films and, and they're sort of the biggest things that he's known for, which is um, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, OK. Mildred Pierce and then um, Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting is he was a he was a journalist and he was also uh, friends and um, sort of mentored by H.L. Mencken. OK. And H.L. Mencken, you know, a lot of people know him as a great uh, satirist, a misanthrope. He's a very problematic figure from a from a modern point of view, um, very witty. But he's also, uh, for people who are interested in detective pulps, he's the guy who uh, started Black Mask magazine. Oh, okay. Which Carol, that's where I read Carol John Daly is, is yep. some of his stuff was published in Black Mask. Pretty much everybody so, started off in Black yeah. Mask, like uh, like 
Red Wind and all that stuff that we did last time, all of Chandler before he started doing novels, all of his short stories, at least a lot of right. them came out of Black Mask, things like that. So that is that's kind of like the weird tales, you know, the the, the premier magazine for uh, for pulp uh, mystery, hard boiled mm-hmm. stuff and everything. For so sure. That, and so that came out of that. And uh, Kane was a journalist and he got uh, involved in a certain court case that we'll talk about on the other side. And that kind of leads to a lot of different things. And maybe that's a good place to get ready to move into the show. Um, do you guys have anything to comment on regarding double indemnity or Kane or anything like this before we get into it? Well, I, I have something to talk about Lux quickly because it's, it's a Lux radio theater show. Oh, yes, and absolutely. So many Lux radio theater shows kind of came up with the radio drama version of a movie in the theaters at the time as a way to get people to go out and see it, right? So they would do Wizard of Oz, for example, as an hour-long version, and then that would be like, wow, I think I want to go see that movie version kind of thing. But Double Indemnity had been out for like six years before they actually came up with this version on Lux. So I'm, I'm interested as to why uh, Lux didn't get to it until 1950, and uh, the movie was out in 44. Yep. So, do you know what the answer to that at all? Or I do not. Neither do I. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if, well, 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 we can talk about the other side, but maybe, uh, maybe the producer's comment at the very beginning, uh, we should just take it face value and go, okay. Yep. <laughs> you know, I would, I would tell the listeners um, to pay attention to there's some incredible acting in this, uh, in this show. I mean, myself growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, I mostly knew Fred McMurray from My Three Sons. Me too. And um, a whole bunch yep. of Disney movies, right? And uh, <laughs> Exactly. And uh, Barbara Stanwyck from The Big Valley, right? She was on The Big Valley for years. Yep. Right, and, right. And, of course, William Conrad is am- always amazing. Um, you know, yeah. and, and, of course, he – my first my – first, um, with him was when he played Cannon on, on – uh, on TV, you know, right. so, so, but the, so, um, you know, these, these people make movies and TV and, and, you know, move away from radio and, and such. But, uh, just, uh, I think there's amazing acting in this. I, uh, I think it's, I think it's all good. Uh, all, all so good. Yep. Absolutely. Now, we don't get a lot of Kane's dialogue uh, from the novel in in the film, but there's some of it there. But, you know, a lot of it's, you know, Chandler, Chandler-esque, but something to be aware of for Kane and, and his role in developing the hard-boiled language. Uh, he was very well known, and whether he was the first person to do it or not, this became almost like his trademark, was he dropped uh, clues of he said, she said from his, di- from his uh, prose. So he didn't have those oh, cool. those linkers. He was one of the first people, or at least, to do it in that dramatic of a way. You had to really pay attention and sort of parse it out and be like really locked into it. And it was a bit um, challenging for people at the time, but it became you know it's so ubiquitous now. This is kind yep. of what it goes back to. He had very stripped down sentences, and he also used vague terms like shape. Shape is used a lot where he'd say like something, and I'm I'm paraphrasing it, something like yeah, underneath that dress was a shape to drive a man crazy. Right. By doing things like that. The audience puts that in there. Do you like shape X or shape Y? Whatever you find to be the type of shape that would drive you crazy, you get to project that into the story. He'd nice. do other things like that. That was uh, he used shape a lot in uh, Double Indemnity in various ways, uh, like three mm-hmm. or four times that have a similar uh, metonymic approach to create a an icon that then people can put in there. But again, it's objectified. You know, right. it's like here's an object. Everything is very distant. So there's a lot of that going on. 
And um, we'll get a little bit of that just because Wilder and Chandler also had that as well in um, in the show. Yeah. And they both fought like cats and dogs over uh, get, what what dialogue to be using. And Chandler won most of those fights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and I love them both. Like I, Billy Wilder is still considered beyond just Hollywood. In my mind, he's one of the greatest directors that ever existed. He had like 13 Academy Award <laughs> nominations yep. back in the day. Like just stunning so well and it's interesting to see the uh, the evolution because again yeah wilder is one of my very favorites but it's interesting to see um double indemnity at this point and then years later sunset boulevard where you know i yes. think you can see the evolution and both are excellent but you can definitely see a, a definite change in growth uh, in both his writing because i think he was the, the sole writer of um sunset boulevard and as well as directing his style yeah. that he's uh, that he's doing here becomes even more stylistic in sunset boulevard and the evolution of noir itself you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. Yep. Cool. Speaking of Wilder, so, just as an aside, did you guys hear that uh, pre-COVID they were um, bringing some like it hot to Broadway? Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. They're they're making huh. it into a musical. Uh, so I, you know, of course oh, everything's no. on hold right now. I'm sure they're still working on it, but um, you know, because Broadway is not on, not lit up right now. But uh, yeah, yeah. Man, I just saw that. Alrighty, so should we just uh, move on into double indemnity? Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. Right on. We'll see you on the other side. Lux presents Hollywood. <laughs> Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray in... Double indemnity. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keel. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. A few years ago, I began a serial in a weekly magazine called Double Indemnity. And believe me, thereafter, I eagerly awaited each new installment. It was one of the most thrilling of James M. Cain's novels... And when Paramount Pictures brought it to the screen, I found the film even more exciting. My renewed enthusiasm was due to our stars, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, who created two of the most electrifying characterizations of their careers. Double Indemnity is a drama of intense emotion between two people whose infatuation leads them to murder and revenge. And as a study in suspense... I'm sure you'll find it entirely satisfying. Just as the ladies of our listening audience find our product, Lux Toilet Soap, entirely satisfying for beauty care, especially these fall days. For throughout all the changes of weather, Lux Soap remains a favorite complexion care. Here's Double Indemnity, starring Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis and Fred McMurray as Walter. Downtown Los Angeles. The night watchman of an insurance company has just opened the door for one of the employees. Working pretty late, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Yeah. yeah this can't wait till morning. Nothing wrong, is there, Mr. Neff? You, you look kind of funny. No, no, I'm fine. Thanks for letting me in. That's okay, Mr. Neff. 
Walter Neff walks unsteadily to his office. He wets a towel at the water cooler, presses it inside his coat to staunch a bullet wound, and slumps at his desk. His hand reaches to a dictaphone transcribing machine and turns on the switch. Memorandum to Barton Keyes, claims manager. Pacific All Risk Insurance Company. Dear Keyes, I suppose you'll call this a confession. I just want to set you right about... about the Dietrichson case. You said it wasn't an accident. Check. You said it wasn't suicide. Check. You said it was murder. Check. But you made one mistake, Keyes. Just one little mistake. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keyes. I killed Dietrichson. Yes, I killed him. I killed him for money and a... and a woman. And I didn't get the money and I... I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? Let me light a cigarette. It all began last May. Around the end of May it was. I had a call to make. A renewal on an automobile policy. Who's at the door, Nettie? What is it? It's an insurance man. He wants Mr. Dietrichson. How do you do? I'm Walter Neff, the Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. Well. Well, how do you do, Mr. Neff? I'm Mrs. Dietrichson. How do you do, Mrs. Dietrichson? That's all, Nettie. Yes, ma'am. It's, uh, it's about the renewal of automobiles. I can't seem to contact your husband at his office. And, well, uh... suppose we sit down and you tell me about it. My husband never tells me anything. I guess he's been too busy down at the Long Beach oil field. Uh-huh. Well, uh, maybe I could catch him at home some evening. Wouldn't take him to clear up. We've got a new kind of 50% retention feature in the collision coverage. And... You're a pretty smart insurance man, aren't you? I think so. Doing pretty well? It's a living. Do you handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? Just name it and I'll write it, Mrs. Dietrichson. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? I should say so. Uh, That's a honey of an anklet you're wearing, Mrs. Dietrichson. I'm glad you like it. There's something engraved on it, huh? Just my name. Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure? I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. We're getting away from insurance, aren't we, Mr. (laughs) Neff? Now, why don't you drop around tomorrow night about 8.30? He'll be home then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. (laughs) There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff, 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going? I'd say around 90. Well, tomorrow night at 8.30 then, huh? Will uh, you be here too? I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet? I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. Good afternoon, Mrs. Dietrichson. I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along the street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you would have known, Keyes, the minute she mentioned accident insurance. Well, I went back to the office. They said you'd been yelling for me all afternoon. Oh, come on in, Walter. Come on in. 
Don't you like to know about that Phillips case? Phillips? Yeah, you wrote a policy on his truck. His truck burned up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at this. Oh, claim waiver, huh? Yeah. Mr. Phillips suddenly decides to withdraw his claim. Mm-hmm. You knew all along it was a thorny, huh? My little man knew. My little man inside of me here. Every time one of those phonies comes along, he ties nuts on stomach. <laughs> what kind of amateurs are we? Well, now, wait a minute, Keys. Sure, I wrote that policy, but I said to have him thoroughly checked first. Now, who's blaming you, sweetheart? I'm, I'm sick and tired of trying to pick up after you fast-talking Why you worry too much, Keys? You're too suspicious. No? <laughs> well, you wouldn't even say today's Tuesday unless you looked at the calendar, and then you'd check to see if it was this year's calendar, and then just to make sure, you'd get a copy of the almanac. Get out of here before <laughs> I throw my desk at you. I love you, too. Yeah? Just thought you'd like to know we nailed another phony. Back in my office was a message from Mrs. Dietrichson. My appointment had been canceled. She wanted me to stop by on Thursday afternoon instead. Phyllis. Phyllis Dietrichson. I was there, all right. Oh, come in, Mr. Neff. I hope you didn't mind changing the appointment. Last night was inconvenient. No, no, I was working on my stamp collection anyway. I was just fixing some iced tea. Would you like a glass? Well, unless you've got a bottle of beer that's not working. Well, there might be some. Nettie! Oh, about those renewals, Mr. Neff, I talked to my husband. Oh, good. He'll renew all right. As a matter of fact, I thought he'd be here this afternoon. No, but uh, he's not. No. It's uh, terrible. Nettie! Nettie, can't you hear... Oh, I forgot. It's Thursday. It's her day off. Uh-huh. Well, uh, iced tea will be fine. Lemon? Sugar? Yeah, fix it your way. As long as it's the maid's day off, maybe there's uh, something I can do for you. Like uh, running the vacuum cleaner. Fresh. You know, I used to peddle vacuum cleaners. Not much money, but you learn a lot about life. I didn't think you learned it from a correspondence course, Mr. Neff. <laughs> Make it Walter, huh? All right. Walter. Tell me, how much commission do you make on this insurance? Twenty percent. Why? Oh, I thought perhaps I could throw a little more business your way. Uh, my husband, I worry a lot about him in those oil fields. It can be very dangerous. Dangerous? For an executive? Oh, you don't know him. He's right down there with the drilling crews. It's, oh. it's got me worried sick. Well, you mean some dark night a derrick might fall? Oh, talk of that. But that's the idea. Well, accidents happen all the time. Don't you think he should be insured? Oh, sure. Well, what kind could he have? Well, enough to cover doctor and hospital bills. Say 125 a week cash benefit, and he'd rate about 50,000 capital sum. Capital sum? What does that mean? Well, in case the accident is fatal. No, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I I suppose you have to think of everything in your business. Why don't I talk to him about it? You could try, but he's pretty tough going. (laughs) They're all tough at first. He has a lot on his mind. He, He doesn't seem to want to listen to anything except maybe a baseball game on the radio. Sometimes we sit here all evening and never say a word to each other. Sounds pretty dull. Walter, I, uh, I want to ask you something. Could I get an accident policy without bothering him at all? How's that? Well, it would make it easier for you, too. You wouldn't even have to talk to him. I could pay for it, and he needn't know anything about it. Why shouldn't he know? Well, because he doesn't want accident insurance. He's uh, superstitious about it. A lot of people are. It's funny, isn't it? If there were a way to get it like that, all the worry would be over. See what I mean, Walter? I think it's lovely. And then if some dark, wet night, the Derek did fall what on Derek? him. What Derek? I don't know what you're talking about. Or maybe about. a car backing over him, or he could fall out of the upstairs Are window. Are you crazy? Either. Not that crazy, Mrs. Dietrich. What's the matter? Look, baby. You can't get away with it. You want him to die, don't That's you? That's a horrible thing to say. What do you take me for? A guy that walks into a good-looking dame's front parlor and says, Good afternoon, I sell accident insurance on husbands. Have you got one that's been around too long? Just give me a smile and I'll help you collect. I think you're rotten. I think you're swell. As long as I'm not your husband. Get out of here. You bet I'll get out of here. 
I'll get out of here, but quick, baby. I'd let her have it, Keys, straight between the eyes. I'd got hold of a red-hot poker, and the time to drop it was now before it burned my hands. But all the time I knew that I hadn't walked out on anything. That this wasn't the end. I knew that sooner or later my doorbell would ring and I'd know who it was without even having to think. Hello. You forgot your hat this afternoon. Did I? How'd you know where I lived? The telephone book. It's raining. Yeah. Sit down. Your husband go out tonight? The oil fields. He phoned he'd be late. Oh, Walter, I must have said something that gave you a terribly wrong impression. You must never think anything like that about me. Okay. No, it's not okay. Not if you don't believe me. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to be nice to me. Like you were at first. Something's happened. I know it has. It's happened to us. I feel as if you were watching me. Oh, not that he cares, but he keeps me on a leash so tight I can't breathe. Well, he's in Long Beach, isn't he? Relax. <laughs> You have a nice place here. Who takes care of it? A cleaning woman comes in now and then. You cook your own breakfast? I squeeze a grapefruit once in a while. You're alone, huh? Oh, that sounds wonderful. You don't have to sit across the table and smile at him and that daughter of his every morning of your life. Daughter? That's right. You didn't meet Lola, did you? He thinks a lot more of her than he does of me. Ever think about a divorce? Oh, he'd never give me one. Well, why'd you marry him? I wanted a home. Why not? Is that so wrong? But that's not the only reason. His first wife was sick a long time. I was her nurse. When she died, he was terribly broken up. I, I, I pitied him so. But now you hate him. Yes. Yes, he's just awful to me. Every time I buy a dress or a pair of shoes, he yells his head off. He's always been mean to me. So you lie awake in the dark and listen to him snore and get <sighs> ideas. Walter, I don't want to kill him. I never did, not even when he gets drunk and slaps my face. Only sometimes you wish he were dead. Perhaps I do. And you wish it was an accident and you had that policy for $50,000, is that it? Perhaps that, too. The other night we drove home from a party. He was drunk again. When we drove into the garage, he sat his head on a steering wheel and the motor still running. And I thought what it would be like if I didn't turn it off. Just closed the door and left him there. I'll tell you what it would be like. We've got a guy in our office named Keyes. In three minutes, he'd know it wasn't an accident. In ten minutes, you'd be sitting under hot lights... In 30 minutes, you'd be signing your name to a confession. Walter, I didn't do it. I'm not going to do not it. Not if there's an insurance company in the picture. They know more tricks than a carload of monkeys. And if there's a death mixed on it, you haven't got a prayer. They'll hang you just as sure as ten dimes will buy a dollar, baby. And I don't want you to hang, baby. So stop thinking about it, will you? Oh, why did I come here? So we just sat there, Keys. And she started crying softly like the rain on the window. Maybe she'd stop thinking about it, but not me. I couldn't. It was all tied up with something I'd been thinking about for years. You know how it is, Keys. In this business, you can't sleep for trying to figure out all the angles they could pull on you. And then one night, you get to thinking how you could crook the house yourself and do it smart, because you know every trick in the book. And then suddenly, the doorbell rings, and the, the whole setup is right there in the room with you. Walter, I... I better leave. Will you phone me? Oh, I hate him. I loathe going back to him. You believe me, don't you? Sure. Sure, I believe I you. can't stand it anymore. What if they did hang me? They're not going to hang you. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you because I'm going to help you do it. 
Do you know what you're saying? Come here. I'm saying we're going to do it, and we're going to do it right. And I'm the guy that knows how. Walter, you're hurting me. There's not going to be any slip-up, nothing sloppy, nothing weak. It's got to be perfect. Yes. Now, call me tomorrow, but not from your house. And watch your step every minute. This has got to be perfect, do you understand? Straight down the line, baby. Straight down the line. Good night, Walter. That was it, Keys. The machinery had started to move. Nothing could stop it now. The first thing to do was fix Dietrich's nut with that accident policy. Oh, I knew he wouldn't buy, but all I wanted was his signature on an application. That meant I'd have to get him to sign without his knowing what he was signing. And I wanted another witness besides Phyllis to hear, hear me giving him a sales talk. A couple of nights later, I went to the house. Everything looked fine, except I didn't like the witness Phyllis had brought in. Dietrichson's daughter, Lola. Didn't you hear me, Nap? I just told you I don't want any accident. Now, look, Mr. Dietrichson, the only way you can protect yourself... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next thing you'll tell me is I need earthquake insurance or lightning insurance. That's right, honey. Why, if we bought all the insurance they'd tell us we need, we'd be broke all the time. Look, what keeps us broke is you're going out and buying five hats at a crack. But, Mr. Dietrichson, dollar for dollar accident insurance is the cheapest coverage you can buy. All I want is a renewal on that automobile insurance. Well, just as you say... Phyllis, do you mind if I go out? Got something better to do, Lola? Yes, I have. Father, is it all right if I run along? I'm going skating with Anne. Anne, huh? Or is it really that Nino Zacchetti again? Oh, Father, please. Better not be. If I ever catch you with that Zacchetti guy... It's Anne Matthews, Father. We're going ice skating. And if you don't mind, I'd rather not keep her waiting. Okay, go on. Good night, Father. Good night, Phyllis. Uh, Good night, Miss Edrickson. Glad to have met you. Thank you. A great little fighter for a wait. Well, uh, now if you'll just sign these papers, Mr. Dietrichson, you'll be covered till the new policies are issued. Just so I'm protected when I drive up north. He was a Stanford man, Mr. Neff. He still goes to his class reunion at Palo Alto. What's wrong with that? Can I have a little fun even once a year? What do I sign? The, uh, the bottom line. Both copies, please. How much are you taking that for? Well, I'll, uh, I'll figure it up later. I can pick up your check at the office. I think that's enough insurance for one evening. Yeah. I'm going upstairs, fellas. Bring me a drink when you come up. Now, good night, Mr. Dickerson, and thank you. All right, Walter. It's fine. He signed, didn't sure he? Sure he signed. Now, the trip to Palo Alto, when? The end of the month. He drives, He huh? always drives. Well, not this time. You're going to make him take the train. Why? Because it's all worked out for a train. Now, listen, baby. There's a clause in every accident policy, a little thing called double indemnity. That means they'll pay double on certain accidents, the kind that almost never happen. Like, for instance, if a guy is killed on a train, they'll pay 100000 instead of 50000 I see. We're hitting it for the limit, baby. That's why it's got to be the train. It'll be a train, Walter, just the way you want it. Straight down the line. In a few moments, we'll bring you the second act of Double Indemnity. Now, our producer, Mr. William Keeley. Act two of Double Indemnity, starring Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis and Fred McMurray as Walter. Earlier tonight, Walter Neff, insurance salesman, was shot and wounded. He was able to reach his office. There, at his desk, he continues to talk into the office recorder. A message for a man named Keyes. Well, Keyes, the first step was over. 
Phyllis and I had Dietrichen's signature on that application for accident insurance. I went out to my car. Waiting for me was Dietrichson's daughter, Lola. I thought you might give me a lift, Mr. Neff. Oh, oh, sure. You like ice skating, huh? I can take it or leave it. Only tonight you're leaving it? Yes. Yes, I am. Could you take me as far as Franklin and Vermont? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Who's waiting on the corner there? His name is Nino Zacchetti. Is that the fellow your father doesn't want you to meet? Nino's not what my father thinks at all. If Nino just weren't so darn hot-headed, if he'd only... I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Please, you won't say anything. I haven't heard a word, Mrs. Dietrichson. Miss Dietrichson. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Neff. You're nice. I saw her run up to her boyfriend. I found myself hoping he was right for her. She'd be needing somebody now because... because her father was a dead pigeon. Only a question of time and not much time at that. Phyllis and I had to pick a place where we could meet, a safe place. We decided on that supermarket on Los Feliz Boulevard. She was to be there every morning around 11 o'clock, shopping. And I could run into her there, sort of accidentally on purpose. I've wanted to talk to you ever since yesterday, Not Walter. so loud. Move over to the shelves. Well, it's all set. The policy came through. Give it to me. Nobody's watching us. Can you get it in a safety deposit yes, box? Yes, yes, we both have keys. Turn your head. Take something off of the shelf. Put it in the cart. You're nervous, Walter. I'm very calm. Remember, you never saw that policy. You never even touched oh, it. Oh, I'm not a fool, Walter. Now, when is he leaving? You talk him into taking the train. You mean you? I can say something now? I've been trying to tell you the trip to Palo Alto is off. He isn't going. What happened? He had an accident at the oil field. His leg is broken. It's in a cast. He broke his leg. What do we do now, Walter? Nothing. Nothing. We just wait. Walk around, will you? We're supposed to be shot. But we can't wait. I can't go on like this. What do you suppose would happen if he found out about the policy? Nothing is bad as sitting in that death house. Don't ever talk like that. Well, don't let's start losing our heads, that's it's all. It's not our heads. It's our nerve we're losing. Oh, it's so awful without you, Walter. It's like a wall between us. I'm thinking of you every minute, baby. Don't ever stop, Walter. Don't ever. I let a full week go by, Keys, and I didn't even try to see Phyllis again. I kept telling myself that maybe those fates they say watch over you had broken his leg to give me a way out. And then it was the 15th of June. You may remember the date, Keys. You were in my office. I'll get it, Walter. Probably Norton looking for me. Nella. Yeah, 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 just a minute. It's for you, Dame. Oh. Hello. Uh, yes. Walter, I had to call you. It's urgent. Well, I'm busy, Margie. Uh, I'll have to call you back. You can't. I've only got a minute. Walter, he's going away tonight on the train. He's on crutches. The doctor says he can go if he's careful. Oh, it's wonderful, Walter, just the way you wanted it. On a train. Only with crutches, it makes it much better, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Keys, uh, suppose I join you in your office, huh? Oh, that's okay. I'll wait. Only tell the dame not to take all day, huh? Uh, go ahead, Margie. Uh, make it snappy. It's from Glendale. I'm driving him there. It's still the same dark street, isn't it? And the signal is three honks on the horn. Anything else? Uh, oh, uh, what color did you pick? Uh, blue. Navy blue. And the cast is on his left leg. Yeah, that suits me fine. This is it, Walter. I'm shaking like a leaf, but it's straight down the line for both of us. I love you, Walter. I'll take care of everything. Goodbye, Margie. Uh, the dame's chasing you again? Or is it none of my business? Well, if I told you she was a customer... Margie, you... uh, Customer? 
I bet she drinks from the bottle. <laughs> I better see what Norton wants. There you were, Keys, right there when Phyllis called me. And those fates I was talking about had only been stalling. Now they'd thrown the switch and the time for thinking had all run out. I wanted my movements accounted for up to the last possible second. Foolproof alibis. I drove my car into the garage in the basement of my apartment. Lost job, Mr. Knapp? Sure. Only have a couple of other cars ahead of you. Well, that's okay, Charlie. I'm not going out. I won't be needing it till morning. Okay, Mr. Knapp. That'll give me time to do a good job on it. Then I called Mr. Norton, asked him to give me, ask him some phony questions about liability rates. He lives in Westwood Keys, a toll call. That meant there'd be a record of it. I changed into a blue suit, the same color Dietrichson would be wearing, and waited for Norton to call me back with the figures. Then I stuffed a hand towel and a roll of adhesive in my pocket so I could fake something that looked like a cast on a broken leg. Next, I stuck a card inside the telephone box. If somebody called me, the card would fall down when the bell rang. That way I'd know if anyone tried to get me while I was away. I did the same thing with the doorbell. I left my apartment by the service stairs and walked all the way to the Dietrichson house. It was easy getting into the garage. I got in the back of the car and lay there on the floor and waited. Finally, they came out. The car started. For a long time, they didn't say a word. You're pretty quiet. Leg bothering you? No more than usual. Remember what the doctor said. If you get careless, you might wind up with a shorter leg. So what? Makes you feel pretty good to get away from me, doesn't it? For three days? Hey, how come you're taking this street? What's wrong with it? You shouldn't have turned. This is the wrong street. What'd you turn here for? Why are you blowing that horn? Answer me. I said, why are you... Dietrichson was dead. That part was over. She kept driving around till I told her to head for the station. Everything all right, Walter? Did you cover him with a robe? Yeah, we can get out. Yeah, the crutches. I'll take care of the red cap and the conductor. I'll tell them to let you alone that you don't like to be helped. Ready? Yeah. Don't worry, Walter. I'll go as soon as the train leaves, straight down the highway as far as that refinery. Then I turn left onto the dirt road to the railroad tracks. You've got plenty of time, but watch your driving. You don't want any cops stopping you with him in the back. Oh, Walter, we've been through this so many times. I'll drop off the train as close to the spot as I can. There's a red cap coming. Car 9, section 11. Just my husband is going. Oh, no, no, thank you. He doesn't like to be helped. Yes, ma'am. This way, please. The train was a few minutes out of Glendale. I hobbled back to the observation platform. I didn't have much time. Only I found that I wasn't alone. Can I help you, mister? Oh, broken leg, huh? Yeah, I, uh, I just thought I'd like to see what it's like out here. No, no, thanks. I can manage fine. Going far? To Palo Alto. I'm going all the way to Medford, Oregon. <laughs> My name's Jackson. Uh, how do you do? You uh, looking for something, uh, Mr... Dietrichson. It's just my cigar case. I, I guess I left it in my coat back in the car. Maybe I can find a port. Oh, you just... There you are, Mr. Dittrickson. Oh, thanks. I'll be glad to get him for you. Hey, what car? It's car 9, section 11. Dark gray top coat. Be right back, Mr. Dittrickson. I had stayed in the shadows. Jackson never did get a good look at my face. But there was no time to think about him. 
I climbed over the railing and dropped off. Walter, you're all right. You're yes. not hurt. No, no, not a scratch. Can you see the cards down there? Yeah, I can see it. Can you manage him alone? Yes. What do you want me to do? Nothing. I'll walk down the road a little, just in case. I'll wait for you. I carried the body to the tracks. As we drove back, we went over once more what she was to do at the inquest and about the insurance when that came up. Yes, Walter, yes, I know just what to do. Did you think I'd go all to pieces now that it's over? I said I'd help you, Walter. Maybe now you'll believe not a nerve, Keys. Not even a tear. Not even a blink of the eyes. She dropped me off a block away from my apartment house. We'd better not see each other for a while, darling. Oh, it's going to be awful. We can meet in the market, say, on Thursday. Walter. Well? You're going to leave me, just like that? Aren't you going to kiss me? Straight down the line, isn't it? I love you, Walter. That's all there was to it, Keys. Perfect. Every detail. And yet, as I walked down the street, suddenly it came over me that everything would go wrong. It sounds crazy, Keys, but it, it was true, so help me. I couldn't hear my own footsteps. It was the walk of a dead man. The next day, it was worse when the story broke in the newspapers. And the day after that, when I knew you'd start digging into it. Then Norton, the supervisor, said he wanted to see me. Sit down, Walter. About that Dietrichson case. Yes, Mr. Norton. Anything wrong? We had him insured, Walter. It's going to cost us a lot of money. That's always wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, what about the inquest? His wife and daughter made the identification. Verdict, accidental death. What do the police figure? He got tangled up in his crutches and fell off the train. They're satisfied. It's not their money. Can I come in? Well, did you find him, Keys, that Jackson fellow? Yeah, I just talked to him in Medford. Oh, hello, Walter. Who's Jackson? The last man who saw Dietrichson alive. There's not much he can tell us either. Well, that's fine, isn't it? And a great piece of salesmanship when we sold Dietrichson that policy. Oh, now, there's no use pushing Walter around. Is he supposed to know when a guy's going to fall off a train? Fall off? Are you sure Dietrichson fell off? Yes. Yes, I am. Not even one of those interesting little hunches of yours? I'm surprised, Keys, because I formed a very definite opinion. I know that it wasn't an accident. Not an accident? Well, you seem surprised, Walter. But what about you? Me? Well, you've got the ball, Mr. Norton. Let's say you run with it. All right. Watch. Yes, Mr. Norton? You can send her in now. There's a widespread feeling that just because a man has a big office, he's an idiot. I'm having a visitor. I want you both to stay and watch me handle this. Mr. Norton, this is Mrs. Dietrichson. This was it. How do you do, Mrs. Dietrichson? This was the finish. Won't you be seated, please? My hand shook, so I had to put them in my pockets. Is it Mr. Keyes? Who would give it away first? Phyllis? How do you do? Or I. And, uh... He knew. Mr. Neff. How do you do? Norton said he knew. 
You know why we asked you to come here, Mrs. Dickerson? All I know is that your secretary made it sound very urgent. Something about uh, accident. Yes, Mrs. Dickerson. Your husband was insured. You'll probably find a policy among his personal papers. His safe deposit box hasn't been opened yet. Meanwhile, I'm afraid we're not at all satisfied with the report of the inquest. I don't know what you mean. Frankly, we suspect suicide. Now, you said at the inquest that your husband had no worries of any kind. Yes, yes, I said that. Yet only a short time ago he takes out an accident policy and tells you nothing about it. Why? Because he doesn't want his family to suspect what he intends to do. Do what, Mr. Norton? Commit suicide. In which case, Mrs. Dietrichson, this company is not liable. Now, we could go to court, you know. No, I don't know anything. I don't even know why I came here. I didn't say we want to go to court. What I suggest is a, a settlement of some Don't sort. bother, Mr. Norton. When I came in here, I had no idea your company owed me money. You told me you did, and then you told me you didn't. Now you tell me you want to pay a part of it, whatever it is. You want to bargain with me at a time like this. I don't like your insinuations about my husband, and I don't like your methods. In fact, I don't like you, Mr. Norton. Goodbye. Yes, sir, you sure carried the ball, Mr. Norton. Let her go to court. We'll prove it was suicide. We will? The first thing that struck me was that suicide angle, only I dumped it in the waste paper basket three seconds later. You ought to take a look at the statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Then it's time you realize this company's got to pay Mrs. Dietrichson $100,000. Come on, Walter, let's get back to work. I could have hugged you right then and there, Keyes. You were the only one we were really scared of. And instead, you were almost playing on our team. That night, I could feel the floor under my feet again. That hundred thousand bucks was as safe for Phyllis and me as if we had it in the bank. Hello? I was paying you a home, darling. Uh, hello, baby. Everything all right? Sure, sure, it's fine. You were wonderful in Norton's office. I felt so funny. I wanted to look at you all the time. How do you think I felt? Where are you now? At the drugstore. Can I come up? Okay, but be careful. Don't let anybody see you. Hello, Walter. Keys. <laughs> What's the matter? Oh, I know you weren't expecting no, me, but... No, no, I wasn't. Uh, what's on your mind? <laughs> what are you so nervous about? Who says I'm nervous? Oh, about? forget it, forget it. It's me, I guess. I got the jumps. Eh, that Dietrichson case. You know, Walter, there's something fishy about that. Like what? I don't know. But right now, I'll swear that it wasn't suicide and it wasn't an accident either. Well, what else is left? You mean somebody... What, what, are you, what are you trying to tell me, Keyes? Go to the door. You got company. Well, what about Dietrichson? If it wasn't an accident... What are you yelling for? You want me to go to the door? Keyes, wait. Wait, I'll get it. Keyes! In a few moments, we'll continue with Act Three of Double Indemnity. The curtain rises on Act Three of Double Indemnity. Starring Barbara Sandwich and Fred McMurray as Walter.
late at night, alone in his office, Walter Neff struggles against the pain of his wound as he tries desperately to finish relating a sordid procession of facts into the office recorder. A memorandum to Mr. Keyes. You went to the door, didn't you, Keyes? You opened it. And I stood there a few feet behind you on, a, on the edge of a cliff. You were pushing me over. Huh. That's funny. Nobody here. Nobody's... Well, look for yourself. Must have come to the wrong door, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, what were you trying to tell me about Dietrichson? Huh? Oh. Well, Dietrichson had accident insurance, right? Now, he broke his leg. Now, why didn't he put in a claim? Why? Well, maybe he just didn't have time to... Or maybe he just didn't know he was insured. No, 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 no. That, that couldn't be. You delivered the policy to him, didn't you? Sure. Down at the oil field. Uh, guy takes out an accident policy. It's worth $100,000. Two weeks later, he's killed by falling off an observation platform. Do you know what the mathematical chances are of that happening? About one in a billion. I'm telling you, Walter, something has been worked on us. Murder? All right, who? That wide-eyed dame who just doesn't know anything about anything, Mrs. Diedrichson. Oh, you're crazy, Key. She wasn't even on the train. Oh, I don't claim to know how it was work or who worked it. <laughs> well, you're no help to me, are you? Well, give me some time to think it over. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry I bothered you, Walter. I don't make much sense, do I? You just don't seem to have anything to go on. Key. No, no, nothing at all. Well, I'll see you in the morning, Walter. Yeah. Five minutes later, Phyllis Dietrichson was in my apartment. It was Phyllis, all right, who'd come to the door while you were there. But she'd heard us talking. She ducked back in the elevator before you opened the door. Luck and brains, Keys. A pretty tough combination to beat. I mustn't stay long, Walter. How do we know he won't decide to come back? Just tell me how much he knows. Nothing, just a hunch. But he can't prove a thing, can he? Not if we're careful. Not if we don't see each other for a while. How long a while? Until this dies down. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid, but not of Keys. I'm afraid of us. We're not the same anymore. We did it so we could be together. Instead of that, it's pulling us apart, isn't it, Walter? And you don't really care whether we see each other or not. Shut up, baby. Shut up and come here. Do you still think I don't care? No, oh, darling. Darling. The next day at the office, I had a visitor, Keys. Remember Dedrickson's daughter... Well, here she was again with something big on her mind. Don't think I'm crazy, Mr. Neff, but I'm not. Honestly, it's the same awful feeling I had once before when my mother died. When your mother died? We were at Lake Arrowhead six years ago last winter. My mother was very sick with pneumonia. One night I found her delirious with fever. All the blankets were on the floor and the windows were wide open. Then the nurse came into the room. She didn't say a word, but there was a look in her eyes I'll never forget. Two days later, my mother was dead. Do you know who that nurse was? Who? Phyllis. I tried to tell my father, but he wouldn't listen to me. Five months later, she married him. I, I tried to forget about it. But now it's all back again. Now that something's happened to my father, too. No, you're not talking sense, Lola. Your father fell off a train. And two days before, Phyllis was in a room in front of a mirror, planning a black veil to her hat as if she couldn't wait to see how she'd look in morning. You've got a pretty bad shock. Aren't you imagining things? She did it. She did it for the money. Only she's not going to get away with it, because I'm going to tell everything I know. Lola, who else have you told this to? No one. Phyllis? Of not. I, I've moved out of the house. I, I've taken a little apartment. You haven't told that boyfriend? Nino? No, I, I'm not seeing him anymore. We had a fight. Uh, 
So you just sit in that little apartment of yours and look at the four walls, huh? Yes, Mr. Neff. But I do a lot of thinking. About Phyllis. I took Lola out for dinner. I'd have to cheer her up. I'd have to make sure she wouldn't drop that dynamite about Phyllis to anyone else. I had no chance to talk to Phyllis. You were watching her like a hawk, Keys. The next day, you sent for me. I've got it, Walter. I've got it. All wrapped up in tissue paper. Dietrichson was murdered, and I can tell you how. Go ahead, Keys. I'm listening. First of all, Dietrichson was never on the train. He was killed somewhere else and then put near the tracks by the wife and somebody else. Then the somebody else took the crutches and went aboard the train posing as Dietrichson. Oh, no, no. Wait a minute. How, how can you be sure? Now, let's see what we've got in the way of proof. The only one who really got a good look at this supposed Dietrichson is that Jackson guy from Oregon. Open the door, Walter, and tell Jackson to come in, will you? Jackson's here? Yeah, come on. Tell him to come in, will you? Uh, uh, Mr. Jackson, would you come in, please? Yeah, Mr. Jackson, please, uh, take a chair. Take a chair. Now, Mr. Jackson, did you study those photographs of Dietrichson? Not the same man, Mr. Keyes. No, sir, the man in these photographs is not the same man I saw on that train. Ah, there you are, Walter. There's your proof. Oh, uh, this is Mr. Neff, one of our salesmen, Mr. Jackson. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Neff. Now, I'd like you to describe the man you saw on the train. Oh, 10 or 15 years younger than the man in these photos. Uh Uh-huh. Of course, it was pretty dark, and he kind of kept turning his back to me, but just the same, I'm positive. Well, thank you, thank you. Now, uh, we may need you again if the case comes to court, you uh, understand? Expenses paid again? Of oh, yes, 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 of course. I'll sign a voucher now. It'll only take a moment. Uh, you ever been up in Oregon, Mr. Neff? What? No, no, I have. That's funny. I keep looking at you like I met you somewhere. Yeah, that's ought to cover everything for you. Oh, well, that's mighty what of you, Mr. Keyes. And any time you need me, you know. Yeah, thanks a lot. Goodbye. Well, there it is, Walter. And pretty soon we'll know who the somebody else is. Will we? Oh, they've got to meet. They've committed a murder. They're stuck with each other. They're on a trolley ride. Only it's a one-way trip, Walter, and the last stop's the cemetery. Yeah, you see this, this policy? Dietrichson's? Yeah, the wife just put in a claim. Well, I'm going to throw it right back at her. I left the office and phoned Phyllis from a public booth. We met in the market an hour later. Why did you call, Walter? What's the matter? Everything. Keyes is rejecting your claim. He's sitting back with his mouth watering, waiting for you to sue. But you're not going to. What's he got to stop me? Plenty. He's got it all figured out. But if he rejects the claim, I'll have to sue. Then you'll be in court and a lot of other things are going to come up. Such as you and the first Mrs. Dietrichson. What about me and the first Mrs. Dietrichson? The way she died. And about that morning veil you were trying on two days before you Lola. needed it. You've seen Lola. Sure I've seen her. Trying to make sure she won't yell her head off about She's what she knows. She's putting on an act for you, crying all over your shoulder, that lying Keep it out of this, Phyllis. Remember, you're not going to sue Because you don't want the money anymore, even if you could have it. Because Lola's made you feel like a heel all of a sudden. It isn't the money now, it's our next. Oh, you're not fooling me, Walter. It's because of Lola, what you did to her father. You're afraid she might find out someday and you can't take it, I can said you? leave her out of this. It's me I'm talking about. I don't want to be left out of That's it. It's just we can't go through with it, that's We all. have gone through with it. The tough part is all behind us. We just have to hold on now and not go soft, stick close to together the way we started out. But the police may be watching us Then right let now. them get an eyeful. I loved you, Walter, and I hated him. But I wasn't going to do anything about it, not until I met you. You planned the whole thing. I only wanted him dead. And I'm the one who was dead. Is that what you're telling me? I'm telling you that nobody is pulling out. We went into it together, and we're coming out together. 
It's straight down the line for both of us. Remember. Yes, I remembered. Just like I remembered what you told me, Keys. The last stop's the cemetery. I guess that was the first time I ever thought of Phyllis that way. Dead, I mean. And how it would be if she were dead. I saw Lola a lot that week. One night we drove down to the beach and all of a sudden she started to cry. <laughs> it's Nino, Walter. Nino. I thought you weren't seeing him. I wouldn't tell anyone else but you. They killed my father together. Nino and Phyllis. He helped you do it. I know he did. What makes you so sure? I, I've been following him. He's been to the house to see her night after night. Maybe he was just going with me as a blind in the night of the murder. You promised me you weren't going to talk like this anymore. Oh, maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe it's all in my mind. Sure, sure, it's all in your mind. I still love him, Walter. I do love him, I do. Zucchetti. Phyllis and Zucchetti. This was one I couldn't figure out. I couldn't come close to it. But the real brain twister came today. You sprung it on me keys after hours when you caught me in the lobby of the building. Well, hold on to your hat, Walter. Yeah, what for? The Dietrichson case just busted right up, and the guy showed up, the guy who helped her do it. So you were right all along, huh? Yeah, yeah. She just filed suit against us to collect a hundred grand. Well, that's okay by me. When we get her into that courtroom, I'm going to tear her to pieces. Come on, I'll buy you a drink. Well, I'd sure like one, Keith, but uh, I've got a date. Huh? Somebody better looking than me? <laughs> that Marcia dame, huh? Yeah, well, I'll bet she still drinks from the bottle. I went back to the office. I was scared stiff. Maybe you were playing cat and mouse with me. Maybe you knew all along that I was the somebody else. I had to find out. And I knew where to look. Your desk. The cylinder from the office recorder. The confidential message you dictated to the boss already for the girl to type out in the morning. I put the cylinder on the machine. And listened. Dear Mr. Norton, with regard to your proposal to place Walter Neff under surveillance, I disagree, absolutely. I've known Neff intimately for 11 years and personally vouched for him without reservation. The man we want is Nino Zacchetti. We've definitely established a connection between Zacchetti and Phyllis Dietrichson as indicated in detail in the attached file. I strongly urge that this whole matter be turned over to the district attorney. I telephoned Phyllis. I told her I'd have to see her that night. It was a hard sale. She was scared of your keys. I know, that's all. I'll tell you when I see you. Eleven o'clock? Eleven o'clock. The lights will all be out. I'll leave the front door unlocked. Okay. Goodbye, Walter. And then, for the first time, I saw a way to get clear of the whole mess I was in. And of Phyllis, too. What I didn't know was that she had plans of her own. In here, Walter. Can you see? Yeah. Hello, baby. Anybody else in the house? No, nobody. We're all alone, huh? I just came to say goodbye. Goodbye? Where are you going? You're the one that's going. Suppose you stop being funny. Let's have it, whatever it is. A friend of mine's got a theory. He says when two people commit a murder, they have to go on riding together to the end of the line. And the last stop is the cemetery. Maybe he's got something there, Walter. Only I've got another guy to finish my ride for me. Nino Zacchetti. Really? It's been you and that Zacchetti guy all along. No, no, that's not so. Well, it doesn't matter now. The point is, Keyes believes Zacchetti's the one he's been looking for. in the gas chamber before he knows what's happening. And me, Walter? What's happening to me all this time? Don't be silly, baby. 
You helped him do the murder. That's what Keyes thinks, and what Keyes thinks is good enough for me. Maybe it's not good enough for me, Walter. Maybe I don't go for the idea. Maybe I've had Zucchetti here so they won't get a chance to trip me up, so we can get the money and be together. That's cute, baby. Say it again. He came here first to ask where Lola was. I made him come back. I was working on him. I kept hammering into him that she was going out with another man so he'd go into one of his jealous rages, and then I'd tell him where she was. And you know what he would have done to her. Yes. I believe you. It's just rotten enough. We're both rotten. Is what you've got cooked up for tonight any better? The window's open. Do you mind if I close it? Why don't you? Yes, Walter. It's you or me, isn't it? What else can I do? So you had a gun all the time. You'd better try it again. Now take it. Take the gun. I think I will. Why didn't you shoot me again? Don't tell me it's because you've been in love with me all this time. No. No, I never loved you, Walter. Not you or anybody else. I used you just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me. Until now when I... I couldn't fire that second shot. I... I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby. I'm not buying... I'm not asking you to buy. Just hold me close like this, Walter. Hold me close. Goodbye, baby. Oh, no! I killed her keys. I killed Phyllis. But maybe her aim hadn't been so bad after all. I felt funny. Light-headed and, and blurry. But I made it keys all the way here to the office. It's almost 4.30 now. It's cold. And keys, I... I want you to do me a favor. I want you to be the one to tell Lola... Kind of gently, before it breaks wide open. I want you to take care of him. That guy's a kitty. So he doesn't get pushed around too much. As for me, I... You're what, Walter? Uh, hello, Keys. Up pretty early, aren't you? What are you doing here? The night watchman phoned me, Walter. Seems you left a trail. Blood. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. How long have you been standing over there? Long enough. Well, now I suppose I get the big speech. Go ahead, Keys. Let's, let's have it. You're all washed up, Walter. Oh, thanks. That was short, anyway. I'm going to call a doctor. What for? So I... So I can walk all the way to the gas chamber under my own power? Something like that, Walter. Look, Keys. Keys, I... I've got a different idea. Yeah? Suppose you went back to bed and... And didn't find out anything until the morning. Would you do that for me, Keys? 
Give me one good reason. Because I... I need four hours to get where I'm going. You're not going anywhere, Walter. You want to bet? I'm going across the border. How's this, Keys? I'm... I'm up on my own two feet. Walter, you haven't got a chance. You watch me. You'll never even make it to the elevator. So long, Keys. I'm much obliged. Hello. Send an ambulance to the Pacific Building on Olive Street. Yeah, it's a police job. How you doing, Walter? I'm fine. Only somebody moved the elevator a couple of miles away. They'll be here soon. You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? Because the guy you were looking for was... was too close to you. He was right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. Yeah. yeah. I love you, too. The curtain falls on double indemnity, and as usual, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray contributed splendid performances. Barbara, as I recall, you were a blonde in the picture of double indemnity. Yes, Bill. I always wondered how I would look as a blonde, and I found out. Then I decided to let nature take its course again. Oh, but not with your complexion, I hope. No, no, I'm very careful with my complexion. I always use Lux toilet soap. Uh, doesn't anybody care what I do? <laughs> oh. oh, yes, indeed, Fred. What have you been doing? Well, I've been making a picture at RKO. Uh, Skilly, uh, Never a Dull Moment with Irene Dunn. That's the title, Never a Dull Moment. And believe me, it's... Well, a... I've been uh, at MGM making To Please the Lady with Clark Gable. And, brother, mm -hmm. that wasn't dull either. For instance, <laughs> I... Oh, look, Barbara, uh... tomorrow night's Halloween. And if you don't let me say something, I'll set fire to your broom. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Isn't anybody going to let me say something? Barbara, didn't you just return from the premiere of your new picture? Yes, it was held in Indianapolis, and I certainly had a wonderful time. It's all about automobile racing, you know. Imagine going all the way to Indianapolis every year just to see those speed races. Well, that is hard to understand with Wilshire Boulevard just around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> What's just around the corner for next week, Bill? More excitement? Yes, Barbara. We think it's one of the most eventful nights of our season. First, the play is a powerful love story. David O. Selznick's immortal screen version of Rebecca. And our stars, two of the most famous, making their first appearance together on our stage. England's brilliant actor-director and his lovely lady. Need I say more? Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. Oh! Good night. Good night and come back again soon, both of you. 
Who is this Hollywood star? One of Hollywood's smallest actresses. She looks even younger than her 21 years. She tips the scale at 95 pounds, keeps her waistline a sensational 20 inches. Such a tiny package must be Wanda Hendricks. That's right, John. Because of her small size, Wanda has even her lingerie made to order. Loves being able to choose unusual shades for slips and nighties. She's very definite about their care. Insists on Lux Flakes for her personal things. She won't tolerate ordinary washing methods that might fade colors. As Hollywood stars know, gentle Lux care keeps pretty slips and nighties colorful as new three times as long. Take Wanda Hendricks' tip. Give all your lingerie that lovely Lux look. Get a big box of Lux Flakes tomorrow. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee in Rebecca. This is William Keeley saying good night to you from Hollywood. We are all aware of the vital importance of religion in American family life. Religious education stabilizes the family and makes for better citizens. We urge you and your family to attend and actively support your church. Take your problems to church this week. Millions leave them there. Heard in our cast tonight were Bill Conrad as Keyes, Rhoda Williams as Lola, Bill Johnstone as Norton, and Robert Griffin... Howard McNear, Norman Field, Eddie Marr, and Virginia Agnello. Our play was adapted by S.H. Barnett, and our music was adapted by Rudy Schrager. This is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to join us again next Monday night to hear Rebecca, starring Laurence Olivier and Vivian... And we're back. So, what did you guys think? Don't look back, baby. Never look back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> oh, what a story. Oh, my God. What a story. It's just to watch the Fred McMurray character, you know, do what he does for the reasons he does it. And, and I, I it's just, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. I, I always have a soft spot for those kind of characters, you know, mm. and, and, um, and, and I like the way they framed it with the, you know, with the, he's already shot in the beginning and, and, yep. um, I thought that was I thought that was, that was well done the the, the narration uh, by him in that way which was which is a little different from what I've heard so uh, I just thought it was fabulous and once again the acting is is supreme um, all around just all around what a great choice what a, what a great listen Jack what about you Yeah I a hundred percent and like I like Jeff I grew up with him as as uh, my three sons and mm-hmm. throw me when I saw him I'm like. I'm not used, I'm used to him in Disney and comedy and stuff like that. And then to see him just, you know, straightforward, you know, uh, being able to just knock this out of the park. I was really stunned when I saw the movie first, mm-hmm. which I saw a couple months ago. And then, you know, listening to him too and still being him. I'm like, why isn't he, because his voice is pretty iconic. Like, why isn't he more in radio dramas too? Like, I would like to hear more radio dramas with him. There is one thing about the narration that bothered me, and I just want to point this out. And it happens an awful lot on Lux stuff, uh, and I th- I think it's a little lazy at times. But they give like an another narrator to narrate before he comes into the narration, hmm. and I don't think that needed to be that way. 
Um, in fact, I was thinking today while I was just like re-listening, I was like, wouldn't it have been cool? And maybe it's because we're modern audiences and we could have accepted it better and it wouldn't have been as confusing as it might have been back then. So I always give them that kind of, you know, caveat because there's a possibility that they had to just be very, very clear with their narration. You know, modern audiences are, have seen, I always tell my students, I was like, if you went back in time, you'd be the greatest bard of all time. You could pull <laughs> stories that nobody would have ever heard of and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. But anyway, um, so when it first comes out, they start off with like this host narrator telling you that he's been shot and and that, you know, he's he's in there bleeding out and then it goes into his narration. Well, we could have with a little bit of clever writing, you could have done that. And you and it would have been interesting even if they didn't mention that he was shot and just have him act it through until the end. And then because then it would have left that a bit of a, a surprise that she shot him at the end. Right. You know, this idea that, you know, well, why is he so out of breath? You know, or why is he, you know, all that kind of stuff would have been interesting if they did it that way. That's a very small complaint, but it was one of the things that I was thinking that I kind of wish that. Even even if they just had him mention it, right, in some way in his narration and get rid of the host narrator altogether, I would appreciate it better for that reason. Yeah, that was my one criticism as well. And I think it was probably a, you know, a foreshortening. I have no idea how long they had to get this production together. But that was the one thing mm-hmm. that compared to the the very strong scene in the movie to where we're seeing it from you know, the car coming, you know, almost careening out of, out of, you know, control and finally yeah. parking and him stumbling through. It's very dramatic. It sets everything up really strongly that got foreshortened a little bit in the audio drama or the radio drama, but you know, it's uh, you know, there might've been other reasons for it, but yeah, I completely agree with that. And um, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, that didn't bother me so much, but I, I, I think we've talked about it before about uh, at least when I write, uh, I, I like as little narration as possible. Um, and I try to do what successfully or not, what you said, Jack, about just trying to write it cleverly so that you don't need narration, but isn't narration part of the noir? Um, yeah, but not a third person omniscient though. That's, that's yeah, the one that's yeah. different. Oh, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause when you got Walter Neff, that's one of the powerful th- aspects of it is he's a, he's an interested party narrator, right? So, you know, he's, uh, what he's saying, he's an unreliable one for that reason. Having an extra, a, a third layer narration on top of it, like you said, it doesn't feel as, as much a part of noir as it is a Hollywood movie that we're trying to adapt for people who can't see, see the video. This, this actually brings in something interesting about genre, and then we can talk a little about um, the d- differences in media as well, where it's, because well, you know, we're dealing with this, this you know, exploration into genres. We did the Western, now we're doing noir. Mm-hmm. We're talking about noir versus hard-boiled. Is it a genre? Is it a style? Well, it's really interesting to go back to the original use of genre used by Aristotle, again, to go back to there, in, in Greek times. Uh, it, ha- it was a very different concept. The original genres was prose, poetry, and what am I? Oh, drama. Drama. Where narration was prose you know you're you're mediated away this is what has happened there's a person telling you something that has already occurred drama you're thrust right in the middle of it and you know poetry has its own rules at some point then they also broke off another genre of fiction versus nonfiction. but that was for a long time the only genres that were there and i think that's an mm-hmm. interesting one because we're getting a little bit of maybe part of the problem that um 
you know, Jack and I had with that narration is we get prose and drama thrust together. Which one is it? Mm -hmm. And that might be some of the problems that people have with that kind of third person omniscient narration in a dramatic sense. But, uh, and I think this, this, this reaction for me that I had probably sums up how I see the differences between the radio show and the movie is when I first heard this, I was at first disappointed that uh, Edward G. Robinson, who played keys in the film, was not in the audio drama. Right. And then, and then it was William Conrad. So it was okay. Right. You know, know, oh, it's Bill Conrad. I'm going to love it. But that's kind of it. It's like, so they're different. You know, it's like they both have their own things and you just need to kind of see what's appropriate for this versus that. But um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good adaptation. Um, I think it's interesting what they picked upon. I thought it was interesting how uh, Phyllis's character, some of her monologue was a little bit more over the top. It really painted her to be a little bit more uncaring than in the film. She's a little bit more of the true femme fatale. Right. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think they did that because you miss out on all of the visual cues yes. in the film, right? Like like the the aspect in the film, she starts off basically undressed, right? And yep. then throughout the film she becomes more and more dressed and basically wears the pants of the relationship once she take over what 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 she gets Walter to do what he wants she wants him to do. There's exactly. A, a scene where she's like like face forward, which you expect to be like the leading man role kind of thing is she's filmed that way specifically to just demonstrate how much in control she is. So you have to modify the dialogue to be able to represent something you can't do in, in the, in in audio when you have the visuals gone. Exactly. Yep. Cool. I I loved, I, I, I'm not like, I'm not very familiar with a lot of Barbara Stanwyck's work, but, uh, if we can just zip very to the very end of the audio drama for a second, I love the 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 back and forth that she had with Fred McMurray, which was almost antagonistic at yes. times. Oh yeah, yes. oh and yeah. I thought that is so cool that they can. I'm gonna have set fun. your broom on fire. Yeah. That's right. Like it was like, whoa, where did that come from? Know, right. That was, so that was funny. I didn't huh? know if there was like any kind of real antagonism between them or not, or if this was just really invented, or if she was considered to be some kind of dark personality at that point. I have no idea what they came up with for that because they were also competing. Uh, uh, networks, not networks, um, production houses too, right? So mm-hmm. she, he would say he was coming out with it and she would say, well, can I say I'm coming out with that? And oh, yeah. it was really interesting how they were sort of on top of each other that way. I love how they worked in the Lux uh, commercial. Oh, yeah. or not the Lux commercial, but just the reference of her using Lux and then McMurray right. pulls it back. What were yeah. you going to say, Jeff? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say I have no insight in, into this, but uh, it, it sure felt real to me when I was listening to it. Yeah. It, Absolutely. It felt like, you know, I really don't like you and, uh, you know, and and get your broom and set it on fire. I mean, Fred McMurray saying that, oh, my God, you know, Mr. Douglas. (laughs) Exactly. Or or Flubber or whatever he played in all those Disney movies, Mm -hmm. Shaggy Dog or whatever they were, you know. Right. It's just just funny. And if it was six years ago they did the movie, that's a long time to hold a grudge. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> it was so it was so tightly you know the beats of that i think that it, it had to have been you know them having a lot of fun and making sure, sure they got in what they needed to that at least that's the way i would like to think about it because otherwise it's just like wow that's really unpleasant right <laughs> yeah hey there was one scene that 
I thought was interesting and that obviously they have to cut things out of the film to make it fit in a you know hour long radio show. But right. there was one bit of dialogue that was so perfect in the film that they cut down to like a quarter of the exchange. And I'm curious if you think it might be because it was a little too sexy for radio. Mm. It was the part and, you know, Everybody will recognize this. I've got the, the full little scene here. So it starts off with Phyllis and then Walter Neff. You know, there's a speed limit in the state, Mr. Neff, 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. You know, and around then it mm-hmm. ends in the radio show, but it continues on in the film. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head on your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. And then he goes and he, and he changes and he stops hitting on her. But it's like, it's great hard-boiled language. It's a wonderful exchange. And I'm just curious as to why they didn't leave the whole thing in. It wouldn't have, I mean, yeah. maybe extra five, se- ten seconds. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's the thing is like, maybe they felt like they needed to trim so much down that they got the point across. If they kept going with that, they were beating, you know, or maybe it was, like you said, too sexy. I think that's one of the elements that we need to talk about when it comes to noir and the long form, is that noir loves to be able to use metaphor in the in, in ways where both sexes will, will, you know, fence back and forth this sexual dynamic in such a way as the audience can pick up what they're really trying to suggest. Um, which you don't see to the same degree, uh, unless you're looking at some kind of comedy, uh, with hope or something like, that, you know, Crosby and Hope, where they would try to do the similar kind of joking kind of thing, but in a very lighthearted way. This is like not lighthearted at all. This is nope. no, nope. very much going for the jugular that way. Yep. So I thought that was a great exchange. I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it was too, too sexy or too suggestive and. I would imagine this this would have aired later on in the evening, and I don't know what kind of rules they had with radio, but I I would uh, you know I would imagine that's what I would imagine. But uh, it was yeah. great. I loved that when they said that in the uh, in the radio drama, you know, speed limit mm-hmm. thing. I thought that was beautiful. What great writing! And that's that's Chandler. To the ninths, right? That's Chandler's oh, God, dialogue yes. 100% yes. for that yep. reason. They yep. also cut back on, like, Lola's role because there was there was some suggestion that Neff and Lola might get together more so. Oh, yeah. Than yeah. They, they had a bit of it in the radio drama, for sure, but there was much more so of it in the movie as well, right? And, and, and Lola's boyfriend, there were scenes, if I remember correctly, there were scenes with him that were completely, like, removed. Yeah, and in, in in the novel, it's uh, it's similar. He basically falls in love with Lola, and right. you know wants to almost like you know cut Phyllis to the side. And it's interesting because this brings up um, some of the the characterization and plot points within this whole thing. And one of the things I like about Double Indemnity, and one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it, is because in some of the you know different types of noir, which we'll see what we can find in audio, but some of the stuff I've read in, in more of the Roman noir stuff is less structured like it, it, some of them may have almost no relationship whatever to let's say uh the Campbellian monomyth uh, hero's journey where this one still kind of does this one is very much like a greek tragedy this one has mm-hmm. much more of the traditional beats and storyline and it's really interesting to see what is the motivation and where is the fatal flaw where is the hubris that is here and you know uh, phyllis's is pretty 
pretty straightforward and blatant, and we'll talk more about her characterization and the um, long legacy of what became the femme fatale in a bit. But uh, with um, Walter's character, it's really about, can I game the system? Can I beat you know, the industry that I'm a part of. It was really less about, in my mind, and I think this comes through more in the film and in the novel, of, um, you know, it's less about him wanting to get rich and really less about him wanting to get the the woman, even though that's what he tells Keys. It's really more about, I want to see if I can do this. I want to see if I can beat everybody else. Yeah, it's pride. It's more than greed, isn't it? Exactly. I, I think so. It And the fact that you make him an insurance salesman Nothing against insurance salesmen, but but the thing I, I'm saying is it's more of like an everyman character, you know, just a regular, you know, it's like in in um, the Pixar movie, they're The Incredibles, where do they make Cap, you know, Mr. Incredible, he sells insurance or he's an insurance, whatever, adjuster or something, right? Yeah. And 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 I think you know that 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 he's living this life, and all of a sudden this vivacious woman comes in, and you know, it's like all of a sudden it's just. I don't know. He wakes up or something. I, you know, I, I'm I'm just thinking about this on the fly. But, but yeah, there's there's definitely something there where this everyman type of guy and and your Greek your Greek uh, tragedy uh, thought holds true with with no question. I like the um, if I may, I I I kind of considered it as the insurance agents and or the insurance adjusters and the insurance detectives are kind of like the underestimated detectives and they got a chip on their shoulder and and i found that both the uh you know the barton keys character was a perfect example of that like all the way through there's just like there's this real sense of i'm never gonna let somebody get something over me you know what i mean yeah you you have no idea how smart i am right and so i think that got drawn in with the walter neff character too right they get a little full of themselves because they know everybody underestimates them Everybody doesn't treat them well. And even, I guess, their boss, Mr. Jackson, he he demonstrated that as well, right? And so they're, yep. they keep they keep ribbing each other and pushing each other in, in the office. Like, are you really sure you're going to give her that money? Really? You know, like that kind of thing. So I, I found that fascinating. And I think that we'll, we'll see that as well to a certain degree in yours truly, Johnny Dollar, right? There's this sense oh, yeah. of I'm, I'm the master of the universe and nobody knows it kind of thing. And it's funny because I, I was thinking I, a guy I know works in that line of work and I was talking to him about it and he said, you know, you realize our job is not to pay, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, um, you know, and, and he says, and I said, yeah, I do. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's so it's that thread was so, uh, you know, right there in this, in this AD. Well, that's, that's a really interesting thing about, uh, what I think about some of the, um, morality within this because yeah i mean my, my mm -hmm. day job for 13 years was to bill a uh, medical insurance um commercial medical insurances for a for a not-for-profit okay. hospital and mm -hmm. the amount of what we used to call stalling tactics that they would come up mm -hmm. with was incredible and since this will be broadcast i will not say any specific uh company names to protect the innocent and 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 our <laughs> own litigation but um there was one company, this was in my first week of getting the job. And so you're, you're, you're first doing what's called being a float. You're just learning how to do everything in the industry. And one of the first things is open up letters and make sure they get to the right people to follow up on. And one was a letter mm -hmm. mailed to us by an insurance company saying that they could not pay on this claim because we failed to give them our address.
it gets a little more complex as to the bureaucracy as to what that actually meant but as soon as i saw that i went oh that's what i'm getting involved in now okay (laughs) great 13 years later they're still coming up with stupid things so yeah an insurance company is never really there to help you they're they're there to make money everybody knows that now but i think this is really interesting because in all of these other detective shows and things where there's a crime to be found before the hard-boiled noir era it'll be about solving the crime putting the the murderer to justice you know let let's get justice in this and here it's like we don't want to pay out the hundred grand let's figure out how we can do this the cops have already closed the case yeah right they don't have to pay was the line right right they don't have to pay and don't have to pay this, there's an interesting thing that uh, was cut out of the film for, uh, for the radio drama, but it's, I think, a very telling scene, which is there's a point where Keyes invites um, Walter into his office to say, basically, I want to turn you into a claim investigator. You're going to be a claims man. And Neff turns him down and basically says, you know, I, I want to stay as a, you know, a salesman, but he's already committed to do, I can't remember if he's already done the murder or if he's getting ready to do it, but basically he's he's already moved off that track, but it's that last sort of like father figure saying get on the right side of things and i want to give you this thing and yeah it's going to be hard work at first but that's where it comes and you can this will be the in the long run this will be better for you and walter turns it down and you know there's some comments about Mm. you know stupidity and and this and that and not making right choices and yeah he really made the wrong choice that could have been like his last way to get out of this yeah i think too that Walter's relationship with Barton Keys is the only honest one in the series, in the in the movie, and 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 in the oh, the absolutely, drama. yes, absolutely, because, yeah, and, no and him him giving that you know testimony to him was him trying to explain how everything went wrong and how he was wrong. It's the only time that we get that you know like just this confessional uh, sense, and and so it says a lot of how he feels about Barton. And how badly he feels and how he says, like, the only reason you didn't discover me is I was too close to you. Yep. And I love that where it's like closer than I thought. You know, that's right. Right. And then in the end where they have that exchange where one of them says, I love you. And yep. Yep. You know, it, it's, it's it's interesting. In, in the movie that said earlier on, too, um, I think during yeah. that scene I was talking about where he's offering him the job or, or somewhere around there, I can't, but it's, it is a refrain that comes back in again at the end, which is so, it was beautiful. And there's a, yeah. um, there's an academic named, uh, William Marling who's written about a lot of stuff of noir and one of his theses, which I don't fully buy into, but I think it's, it's pertinent and it, it definitely plays into, uh, the role here is where he sees a lot of the themes and patterns in a lot of the noir literature to follow the structure of the, uh, prodigal son the prodigal son parable from the bible and i think right. we get a little bit of that hmm. with with neff and um and keys yeah oh huh i hadn't thought of that that's yeah. interesting that makes perfect sense i didn't think about it either that's awesome yeah and it, 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 i think he over eggs the pudding a little bit in trying to make his theory work but it's a, it's an interesting you know if if noir is this very dynamic three-dimensional object it's just another facet of the gem that we can turn and look at and see you know what exactly is all of this well, let me ask a question to you guys because you're, you know more about this than I do. When you bring up this whole idea of love in noir, um, that, that's a, that's a checkered thing, isn't it? I, I mean, um. We're having a hard enough time, uh, defining noir. Now you want us to define love? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I, you know, I just, you have these relationships 
you know, between the, the detective and a lot of times a very beautiful woman. And But I, I wonder where the, if there's real love in these stories or if it's just devoid of that. Yeah, that comes up to one of the questions. If I can parse it down a little further, I want to know I, what your thoughts are of what Phyllis's uh, motivations are beyond just money. What does she want out of life? Well, I, I had the feeling that she, uh, she just couldn't stand her husband and wanted him out of the way. I mean, that she seemed, it, from her viewpoint, and whether or not she's reliable or not, that's tough to say. But, you know, and she goes on about, doesn't he, doesn't she say that she he hits her? Yeah. Doesn't, we don't know if that's true or not, though. That's the thing. That's what if I mean. You, that's, what I, that's what I'm Lola, saying. Right? If you talk to Lola's story, she took over from her real mom, right? So her real mom died from suspicious circumstances right. and so she took over from that so yeah i'm not sure we can trust anything that phyllis says not that i'm saying we can trust anything that lola says but she seems to have less in in you know less skin in the game to lie about something like that in the same way right i agree and that's why i said i don't know if we can rely on what phyllis says mm-hmm. you know it's very often i mean i know like in you know <clears throat> maltese falcon you know, doesn't she's you know he tells her you know you're a liar right and she goes I know I can't help it you know but you like that about me or something like that you know there's mm-hmm. some kind of a thing like that you know where she lies about everything and and um you know we never know when she's telling the truth uh, so yeah so I don't I don't really I don't really believe everything that Phyllis is saying because she's playing Neff I mean to the to the max right um, so it's hard it's hard to uh, it's hard to know what what the deal is. Whether I mean, they didn't. They sounded like they were. I mean, they sounded like they were well off money wise, right? I mean, he was yeah in the oil. He was an oil executive or something, right? And and so I, you know, I doubt if it's money. So what is it? Well, I think it ties into what you were first when you brought up a uh, love. I thought that actually you know was a perfect segue because it actually does tie it together in the sense that one of the consistent things throughout noir in a lot of different tragic literature is the idea that, you know, main characters are not at peace with themselves. They want, they're dissatisfied with something and it may not even be a rational thing. I don't, I think that when we're dealing with the human condition, while it can be like, Oh, it's this very clear motive. That's almost mechanistic. I think in some cases we get more something deeper, something more shadowy and, and naughty in this, in not in the sense of like, a knot that's tied up, not as in like, oh, how naughty of you. Um, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, something that's that's knotted, and we're getting with, I think, both Phyllis and Walter to a certain degree. They're not happy with who they are. They're not in love with themselves. There's a there's that there, there's a great quote about how t- you know, being truly alone only comes after you've you know turned your back on on who you are, um, or from yourself. I can't remember the exact quote, but. These are people that are, you know, dissatisfied with no matter what. I mean, Phyllis is already, she became a nurse. That wasn't enough for her. Then she killed one of her people and, you know, to get the marriage. And now it's not there. There's something deeper than anything else that, you know, is this particular event. And um, that I think is the big tragedy of noir is we get a lot of characters that for various reasons don't have love in their lives, whether it be something external that they need that is, you know, that, that lack has scarred them forever, or they've turned away from themselves and, and, ha- and have forgotten how to love themselves. Yeah, I guess that's a great point. I guess that's what I was trying to get at with the love thing is that I just don't, you know, whether it's Marlowe or whoever it might be, um, you know, there's certainly lust and there's certainly, hey, you know, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? You know, Forsby or whatever his name is, right? Gets killed because he goes, he goes out instead of Marlowe there because he thinks she's, she's hot, 
right? And and um, but I I wonder about love and and just the way that they live. And you know, we don't get into it much in this one, but in, in others like Maltese Falcon, you know, he lives by himself in this little teeny apartment, and you know, like a one room thing. And you know what I mean? It's just it's it's this kind of a there's kind of a bleakness or something or kind of a desperate nature to it all. Um, with Marlowe, if you read the novels, uh, we actually do get to see where does his love life end up? And it's not, it's not a complete noir tragedy, but again, it is, he's, he's a hard boiled private eye. Um, it's not going to yeah. be a happy ending for him. Right. Not in the way that we would all expect. Right. Right. I, and yeah, I, that's what I would think. I mean, you know, but I haven't read all the books like you guys have, but so I'm just kind of making this up, but you know, do it. Do it. Read them all back to back. Binge read them. They're awesome. <laughs> I would argue that um, in this case and in, in many cases, and I'm trying to remember the movie I watched that was a, a noir movie. And I'm going to have to go back and see, look at my my stack of movies I have out because it was fascinating, too, that um, there, there's definitively a feminist reading here of uh, women needing uh, being out of control and desperately needing to feel like they have control. And I think that's what's the situation of Phyllis. I think that um, Phil. I think in Phyllis's mind, you know, I just need to have this, and then my life will. I'll have control over my life, right? And anytime okay. there is, you know, another man that has, you know, a, a, some element of control over her life, she uses these her feminine wiles to be able to find a way to to. Uh, change that around the power structure so that she's ahead in this way and uh I've, I've seen this in other uh noir films where there there are women who definitively have been uh beaten down one way or another and are are attempting to try to be able to find their own independence and do that through the manipulation of of sex and love well that's a great segue into one of the things that we really definitely need to cover here because there's a lot of uh, foundational stuff that's really uh, quite critical in regards to the archetype of the femme fatale. Mm -hmm. So obviously we know that there has been fear and distrust between the two sexes since the beginning of time. I mean, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. let's look at Greek tragedy. It's all over the place. Let's look at Shakespeare. We've got, you know, oh, yeah. you know, that same sort of dynamic. Uh, the Norse sagas are damn noir stories written in, you know, a thousand years ago. There are so many, uh, crappy men doing things over women and women doing things over men and trying to get power and in, in, in unequal power dynamics and all that sort of stuff. Mave of the gentle thighs of, of uh, Celtic stories. Of, exactly. Right, another perfect example. Yeah. This, this has gone on for a long time, but there's a certain event that happens that if we want to, you know, use a electronics metaphor, like a capacitor that takes that dynamic, reinvigorates it and makes it something very temporal to 1927, which is the Snyder Gray case, which leads up to before we get to the actual case itself, we have something else going on in, in America at the time, which is the, uh, the uprise of the flapper. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Which now we think back and go, oh, what a what a cute sort of archetype. <laughs> and, you know, they're doing the Charleston and it's all great and fun and everything. At the time, there was actually, especially outside of the, the big cities where, you know, we have that urban nightlife thing going on. Mainstream America considered flappers to be a in the whole decadence of the 20s to be a, a debilitating force for the culture. And there was something mm -hmm. called the flappers as mothers debate, which is like when these girls grow up, what 
what are they going to do raising children? They're going to create a whole generation of, of decadent people, and this is really horrible. And in 1927 is uh, a wife named uh, Ruth Snyder, who uh, basically was a flapper, ended up getting married, and then she started having an affair with a married corset salesman named Harry Judd Gray. And that's where we get the Gray-Snyder case. Both of them started planning Albert Snyder, her husband's death, because, and this is from her point of view, uh, it seemed to be that he was still in love with his dead fiance, whose name was Jesse Guishard or something like that. I can't pronounce the last name too well. Uh, but basically, he kept a picture of her up. I think he named a boat after her, and she really just didn't like that. So she, she had some uh, resentment against her husband. They actually got an insurance salesman to forge a $48,000 life insurance policy with a double indemnity clause to pay extra if violence killed the victim. Didn't have to be on a train, but it just had to be violence. They did seven attempts before they finally strangled and um, staged his death as part of a burglary. The cops found out very quickly. They went through this large um, trial, and then they were both executed in Sing Sing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that's the real world... uh, event that Kane was a journalist following. He wasn't like assigned to it, but as a journalist in general, he was following cases all over the place. It fascinated him. And that's what the origin was for um, both Postman Rings Twice and more specifically Double Indemnity with the whole insurance aspect. But here's a Mm -hmm. a great quote by um, Alexander Wolcott, who wrote about the case. Ruth Snyder was so like the woman across the street that many an American husband was haunted by the realization that she also bore an embarrassing resemblance to the woman across the breakfast table. (laughs) So America at that time in 27 was very afraid of what was going on, you know, in the family and what could happen. And so that was ripe for these types of stories and to reinvigorate then what became this very strong you know, archetype during the whole uh, classic noir period of, of the femme fatale, this then ties in and we get, okay, so we've got real life influencing art. In 1964, there's another case by Lucille Miller who kills her husband in a murder directly inspired by double indemnity. And she gets caught and gets put in jail wow. as well. So wow. it comes back around again in 1964. Uh, Joan Didion wrote a great um, nonfiction piece on it. And she was saying, yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is the type of uh, land in California where, uh, you know, people see double indemnity as a how-to manual or something like that. And it's like, you completely missed the point. Don't take it literally. It's not something you're supposed to be doing. Didn't end well. You know? Did not end well. No. <laughs> Yeah, I was, and the movie, one of the movies I was thinking of that it reminded me too was Killer Bait. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that. No, no. Um, oh, geez, it was, it, it was, it was great. I really loved it. And it starred Elizabeth Scott, who I instantly fell in love with and never saw before. And Dan Dur- Duria, or Durye, um, who, uh, if you're a Twilight Zone fan like I am, you recognize him as, um, this drunk, um, uh, cowboy, uh, just a great role that he plays in the first season uh, of, of one of the Twilight Zones. Sadly, he died early in his life, too. But what a great, great actor he was as well. It was called uh, Doomsday f- um, for uh, uh, Denton, Denton, Mr. Denton on Doomsday was the name of the Twilight Zone episode. If you want to look for that. So, yeah, like it, the, the here's the, the title of Killer Bait or the the, the subtitle is. A dissatisfied wife, an honest husband, a two-bit detective, a bag containing $60,000, you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so there's, 
there seems to be themes in that area, right? Where you've got a dissatisfied wife in one way or another and a rich husband. And oftentimes they're younger than the than the husband. You know what I mean? In that same way. So Yeah, exactly. More restless. You guys are and here's where we get a little bit of the noir and just to bring the geeky side in again for things, um, the connection with Star Wars. Mm. Hmm. Um, you guys know Lawrence Costin, right? Yes. Oh yeah. Love him. Right. And he was the scriptwriter for uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yep. And mm-hmm. yep. And Return. Yep. yep. Right. And where we where we get the whole like, you know, uh out of the past, uh Han Solo can't get away from that. It ends really darkly and bleakly. Well, the movie that he did, you know, a little bit before that was Body Heat with William right. Hurt. Mm-hmm. And um that is also directly sort of inspired by the same source material, the cases that went into double indemnity, and of course the postman rings twice. It's very similar sort of storyline. And it was one of the classic early eighties neo noir. And you can sort of see where Costin's head is at, um, even even in his uh, you know, Star Wars stuff. It's, if you think about the relationship between Han and Leia Yep. There's certainly some noir uh, throwbacks there in the way that they, they, you know, they banter back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I never thought of that. That's very cool. Very cool. And and I love Lawrence Kasdan, and I love his films, A Big Chill, and I just, I, I think he's a genius. And I remember, because <clears throat> I've read a lot about Star Wars, and one of the actors or he said it was, thank God for Lawrence Kasdan, because he's the one that put all the humor into the script. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when George Lucas, who I love, you know, when you, you know, the, the famous thing of, uh, um, Carrie Fisher saying, yeah, you can write this stuff, but you can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, um, yeah. I, I think Lawrence Kazan, when he came in and I think he was brought in afterwards in Empire and Jedi to kind of doctor it up and, 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 um, but he, he, he's an amazing writer. And, and I mean, a films like Silverado. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, you like that. And, and his son is a writer director now too. Yes, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did those, he did those, uh, new Jumanji movies, which I really enjoy. <laughs> yeah. If oh, you've seen fun. those, he, yeah, those are really fun. Yeah. He did those oh, and yeah. other stuff too. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, so I, I'm a huge Lawrence Kasdan fan. Cool. Cool. Great. Now we, we mentioned, uh, if we can, I don't want to, but we talked a bit about uh, William Conrad, and I think he does an amazing job in this role, but he does great in everything yep, that he yeah, does. Yeah. And he's like one of him and Raymond Burr are like solid mm-hmm. second man characters for any kind of, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, just a contrast, a strong contrast in that way. Um, but, you know, they also have like Bill Johnstone, Rhoda Williams, Howard McNear, Norman Field. Not McNear, yep. yeah. Edimar, you can and always tell his voice exactly yeah. right so and i was just yeah. like i i don't want this to pass without saying that they did excellent work as well yes right and and yes. um howard mcnear um i guess everybody remembers him from the andy griffith show right right mm-hmm. uh he yeah. played doc. floyd yeah floyd, floyd the barber right? yeah floyd yeah, lawson yeah. the barber that's right yeah he uh, was the doctor in Gunsmoke. that's exactly yep. And he was in yeah. a ton of other things, including, you know, he just would show up everywhere if his in radio drama, you know. So oh, yeah. he didn't just do uh, Gunsmoke, but it was amazing. Um, but there's, um, I think it was Norman Field that I was trying to remember. I think Norman Field, who I hadn't heard of before, was sort of like the second banana for Lux Radio for an awful lot. He was in a ton of different Lux Radio shows. Oh, interesting. So, that was kind of cool to look that up as well. And if I remember correctly, 
it's either him or, or another one of the radio stars actually started off in, in uh, Canada, started off in, in, in Quebec. Um, so that was kind of cool. And, and Rhoda Williams as well. She, uh, had a, a very large life in early radio too. So she, she did a ton of stuff in, in the early days of radio and voiceover. So she was very well known, uh, for, for that specifically, but then she moved into film too. So we, they had a really solid group of people to work with. And that's, that's something we, you know, we take for granted very often is like people, you think of the, like the main two actors who, who are the anchors for the show. But again, they're only as good as the people around them. Right. Yep. For that reason. Oh, yeah. oh sure. So, Oh yeah, that it, was just my part. I wanted to throw in. Specifically. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, and they did such a great job. And I thought that the actress who played Lola uh, was pretty fantastic. Right. Oh yeah, she was great. And and being an acting teacher for so many years myself, you know, it's uh, one of the greatest advice that I heard given was to uh, start your character parts early. You know, you'll get a lot more work that way. It, and uh, so when you're a good character actor, or like a second line, like you, as you said it, Jack. Uh, and, and you're strong, you'll get hired all over the place. Right. Um, you know, when you look at looking at people like Howard McNear or, you know, Harry Bartell or, or any of those people that are just in so much audio drama, I can, you know, I can, I can see producers or directors sitting around going, who should we get? Uh, call, call Howard, you know? Yeah. Or get, get Harry Bartell, you know, he'll come in, you know, it, it's, uh, cause they're so good and they can do so much. Yep. And, uh, it's just, it's, amazing so i'm glad you brought i'm glad you brought them up yeah i i i often watch a bunch like i watch more television than than anybody should ever do but i i I take in story at all times and i was just zipping through a show that i had never heard of because once i like how how sitcoms are are formulated so i was watching one that's very office like called um superstore and what made me really amazed about it was mark mckinney i don't know if you know that name oh yeah Mm-hmm. Kids in the uh, hall. So yeah. Kids in the hall, right? So I hadn't yeah. seen him in a lot of stuff, but every time I see him, I'm so impressed at his character work, right? So he plays like the the. It's kind of like a, a Walmart kind of place. It does, mm-hmm. and he's the manager, and his character is he has a voice that sounds like a Muppet, and I thought like that's awesome. Like, is <laughs> it? And then he just built into that all the different elements that came from it, but it all comes from like. A lot of those guys, even in the kids in the hall, and that's in the 90s, right, are, are saying, okay, from my voice, what does this character identify, right? And that's what you can do specifically as you're, as an audio drama actor, even to this day. It's just like, what can you bring vocally? And it doesn't have to be a, you know, a pitch change or something like that. It can be just the way you attack a lines. Absolutely. And, and, mm-hmm. and how does that, what does that say about you as a character? What does that say about the way you see the world? And so yep. the, these, these people do it so naturally because they've been doing it for so many years already and they've been doing it so often. Um, but still, it's, it's just, it's really neat to see amazing actors just pick this up. What, what stru- stunned me and made me realize that Fred McMurray hasn't been doing this very often is he stumbled a couple of times yes, on lines. Yes, he did. He did, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this was obviously recorded live for that reason, right? Yeah, there was so. actually one point where I heard some laughter in the audience. So it was it was with an audience yes. in front of it. But I, I think it's interesting when you're you know mentioning a, a you know Bill Conrad and some other people. It's making me think about keys, and 
also kind of like how the overlap between noir and hard boiled. And it can be even like the same story from a different point of view. Like we could, this is clearly a noir. It ends horribly. It, you know, we get the, you know, all the fatal flaws and everything. But if we change the perspective just a bit, this could be an episode in the ongoing adventures of Barton Keys, insurance investigator. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gee. You know, and it changes just the, if we were seeing it from his point of view of this career of always being the right one, it would be far more optimistic. But that's a big thing is like, you know, um, some of the stuff I've been reading is really making a point. And they're using this in the terms, almost like the philosophical terms of optimism versus pessimism versus the colloquial way that, that most of us use it. And, you know, hard boiled is optimistic because it has heroes and noir is pessimistic and it you know optimism from that point of view is is inherently escapist because noir forces us to see the world in a darker view and here's a quote from jason holt which i thought was interesting pessimism is irrational only when the world fails to warrant it and that's kind of interesting of like when we look at the world even in a more colloquial are we an optimist or a pessimist what do we choose to look at how do we see it there's so many things in the world could we really say that pessimism is not warranted now but at the same time how do we live a good life and keep getting up in the morning if we constantly stay in that state these are some of the things that i think that noir and hard-boiled uh, allows us to look at in varying degrees of uh octane how high octane can we take it I, and i agree with that i think that's a great point and i i just to amplify on your point about different point of view um like with keys if you wrote this from keys point of view uh I always appreciate it when authors do that. Like, for example, in, in, uh, Kurosawa's Rashomon, right? Where mm-hmm. you get the, <clears throat> the, the murder from the, all the different viewpoints, mm-hmm. right? Or even in Run, Low to Run, that great Tom Tickwer film from oh, like, yeah. 2001. Uh huh. Right? Where, where it's like, okay, if you had delayed on this part, so, you know, the movie's in three parts, right? And it's all the same thing, but it, it's different because, the timing is different. Um, and, and I think that that would, that's a really interesting idea, um, in terms of, yeah, what would this story look like from Key's point of view? Um, yeah, I just, I, I, um, I know I got us off topic there, but it was just on my mind and I just thought it was such an interesting point. I, I always found that pessimism, especially in noir, tends to be people who were, definitively optimists who just got beaten down so badly that they 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 look for the 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 negative when they when they would and they they want to prove that they're right in their pessimism you know what i mean they want to prove that people but still deep down they wish it wasn't that way they wish that they would be wrong somewhere down the line <laughs> you know it's just yeah and i get what you're saying I'm, I'm sort of approaching it more from the point of view of the the ontology of the novel versus the perspective of the characters but i think right. a lot of the characters are sometimes between the two like they don't they know there's something fatal they can't get away from but they're re, they're they're choosing not to look at it they think they can escape their past when they really can't they think that they can make up for something when they really can't and it's like they're neither fully com- it's almost like they're neither committed to being completely bad or completely good and that brackish water is kind of what get, they get stuck in and can't get out of like it's a you know quicksand at that point well there's this this pessimism and you guys would know more than i but it seems like watching these some of these noir films or or, or listening to the radio drama <clears throat> i wonder if how these guys got to be these private detectives if they're in fact you know private detectives and mm-hmm. 
And, you know, some of them, it seems like they were detectives or they got fired off the force or something like that. Or, but there always seems to be this antagonism, or not always, but it seems like there's this antagonism between the, the private detective uh, hero and the police, right? You know, like, and, and there's this kind of hard-boiled, wisecracking dialogue that goes on between them, like in Maltese Falcon or Chinatown, you right. know, or, or that kind of thing. And I, I just, I don't know if they're all like that. But um, that seems to be something that I always kind of pick up on. And I wonder how they got to where they are, you know, for, for what reason are they in yeah. this situation right now? Well, we talked a little bit about Marlowe's uh, biography last episode, which you know is pretty straightforward. But really what comes out there is just uh, in L.A. and specifically uh, Chandler's fictional version of Santa Monica, which he calls Bay City. Um, mm-hmm. it, basically, the police are just corrupt. There's right. a lot of okay. corruption going on in the place and there's a lot of corruption in the world. And, um, you know, some cops are good. Some cops are bad, but the machine itself is corrupt. And if they're not okay. corrupt in this particular instance, it's just because they're holding, they're holding out. But you know, the town is pretty sick. That's one of the things that I noticed. Like if you, t- if you watch a movie where you're dealing with a protagonist, who's not a, uh, not a nice person. And I'm thinking yeah. of, um, of, uh, Oh, that, that movie with, um, Mel Gibson in it. Uh, payback mm. where where if you've ever seen it, it's a great movie and um really good script and um he's a he's an awful human being but everybody else around him is worse and he has <laughs> a, a moral code it's not a big thing he just wants what's due to him he doesn't want any more he doesn't if people have offered uh-huh. him more and he's like no this is what was due to me and that's it there's something about uh, an audience that can get on board with somebody who's bad if everything else around them is even worse. You know what I mean? As a hero in one way yep. or another. I was watching a, another noir movie and I just remembered what it's called. Detour. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. With Tom Neal no. and Ann Savage. Mm-hmm. It's another yep. really powerful movie. And I'm like, wow, this guy is so broken. You know what I mean? And all he de- desperately wants to do is uh, he's poor as heck and wants to go across the country and meet up with this woman that he has jilted him and he loves and he meets up with the wrong woman of course driving there kind of thing and it's 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 this dark dark broken people people wandering around that like just bags of broken glass oh yeah Mm -hmm. yep and and what's what's fascinating about that film is it was filmed in six days so the the pressure on the actors that we see of them being disheveled and um, you know, stressed out and sweaty. That was probably true. They were probably working really, really hard to get this thing done in six days. And that was part of, I forget the director, um, but he's a, he's a, he's a classic, you know, Edgar artist. G. Ulmer. Yes. Ulmer. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, he chose to do this, um, you know, in more of the uh, poverty row studios cause he could have more control over it. And it's right. a very interesting film cause it's so the performances are so over the top, but yeah. they work in their own weird sort of way. And there's some great stylistic stuff in there too. Really cool. Tom Neal and Ann Savage yep. uh, starred in that one, for sure. We're getting so, too far so off. Far. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm just I, saying we're getting too far off the topic, but I think it's all part and parcel, right? I'm going to take us farther off for a second, but um, I, I just had a thought, Lothar, and I don't know the answer to this. Um, would you consider, like, John Cassavetes' characters in his films, like, hard-boiled? Uh, you, know, you know, the film... I would have to watch them again. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised, especially considering where we're at now. It's hard to not have at least some, you know, elements of, of 
noir and hard boiled come in. Um, but I, I really would have to watch again. I, I really can't say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry for springing that on you, but no I problem. just, I yeah. just had that thought about, you know, when you're talking about that character. And so, of course, Cassavetes and those great films he made, you know, came into my mind. Um, uh, like that, and I don't know the answer, so I, I'll have yeah. to watch them again too. Yeah, so I, just, I'll put it on the list of things to rewatch because I'm rewatching a lot of classic uh, stuff. That's uh, that, that's my uh, video medium of choice right now is, is older films. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, is there any? Um, oh, I guess the one last thing I wanted to mention is just the term "straight down the line," which yeah, all um, of us reference or understand. But there's sort of three levels of how it works. Um, you know, within the story, one. During that time period, straight down the line also had a connotation of when you do something straight down the line, you're doing it faultless. It's absolutely perfect. So it's Mm -hmm. not just the metaphor of going down the train line to the end, um, but it's doing it in such a way to where it's it's straightforward. It's no nonsense. It's done perfectly. And so that's kind of what he's referencing of straight down the line at the beginning. Then we've got the, you know, obviously it takes place on a train. So we've got a very literal resonance of that coming through and then of course the metaphoric trip of disaster of that trolley that keys was talking about to where you guys are gonna you know end up at the uh you know basically death row after this mm-hmm. i thought that was just a great wow. a great thing that kept coming up in both the in, in all three versions of the uh of it you know the, the novel the film and the uh and the radio show and they never explain it because they don't need to and that's they don't awesome. need to then yeah exactly like, not yeah. only the audience but the characters get it right the characters understand that you know once you are locked on straight down the line is like stick with me baby we're going to do this straight down the line and then straight down the line you got no way of getting off this train yep you know this train is going to go to the end yeah i love Fabulous. i love that it's just it's just brilliant and this is again chandler in di- dialogue where he, where he boils stuff down hard boiled stuff down <laughs> to the point where um you can take a, a a metaphor or some description of some sort and that be or a saying and that becomes the the, the place that you hang the hook for the entire story here's the thing i had a question for which is interesting because there was a moment where all of this could have unraveled because he had an accident and it ended up being perfectly designed because using the cast and the like, it gave them the opportunity to be seen and not seen too closely on the, on the train. Except that's also how Keyes first starts getting that it's, that it's a problem because he goes, wait, he broke his leg, but he didn't, yeah, he didn't, he didn't uh, put in a claim. Why yes. not? So that exactly. is, per- it, you know, it's great that way. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how um, they 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 had a plan that couldn't be used, and then they had to go back at it and rehatch the plan. And you wonder if their original plan might have been more successful because it didn't require that, right? Yeah, yeah, good point. So. Well, something interesting is uh, Cain was ultimately very much a religious man, and he was also somewhat of an optimist. And, and you know, a lot of the analyses of these these noir writers specifically, they rage against the world. They're not depressing and want to bring everybody else down. They're trying to show, look at what's going on out there and can't we do something about all this stuff? And mm. there was a difference between um, Mencken's view, who was very much a curmudgeon, and Kane. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of Mencken's idea was that uh, love is the illusion that uh, there is any thing different between any woman that all women are exactly the same and you know dismisses them because of that um kane's idea was more along the line is love is when you realize there is something different about a special woman and that's the one and that's the one that you want to be with so he was very Mm. much of a romantic he 
know, we see that, I think, in a lot of his, because there is a moral aspect to his stories to where, you know, the bad guys don't get away with it. And so there is yeah. still a little bit that, even though he is also portraying a really harsh world that he saw as a journalist, which is that there's a lot of crap that goes out there and there maybe aren't clear cut heroes in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the hard boiled nature uh, take out on the noir requires that some kind of cosmic justice takes place. Well, if the dete- if the hard boiled detective is there, yes. If it's yes. just the language, and that's the whole thing. It's like, what are we talking about when we say hard-boiled? Are we talking about the the style of language or the type of protagonist, which is, again, that, uh, you know, Western gunslinger that has uh, turned in his, um, you know, 10-gallon Stetson for a fedora? Well, I'm thinking <laughs> of even the DOA, right? Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. there's, there's justice that goes there, even though um, the, the detectives aren't catching the people by the end of this, the show. You know they will at some point, right? The, yeah. The, the justice has to do with that. Um, and what's the movie? And I saw it, and I can't figure it out. What's the movie where it's it's Alfred Hitchcock's original reference of Crisscross was? Um, oh God, uh, and, not and, North and, North by Northwest. No, I'm no, nope, no, it's not that. It's it's much more. It's much more. Uh, it's in my. I'll look in my earlier. I'll look in my film noir collection because I no no I watched mm-hmm. it on on uh, streaming service. So I'll have to go back mm-hmm. and look at it. Um, Everybody remembers Throw Mama from a Train, uh, <laughs> where they pick that up. But yeah, in, in that particular movie, too, again, it's kind of like a universal justice that is, is, takes place. Something is, is said inappropriately because the main characters aren't the detectives or anything, right? They're the people that are involved in typical sort of um, Hitchcock, Hitchcock fashion. The people yep. that are deeply in, engaged in you know, the ill affair something they do gets them caught and this is what happened here yeah and i think we're going to get uh you know because even while we still have the noirness of everything here um there are going to be times where we're going to be dealing with uh audio gris instead of audio noir and we're going to be getting that gray aspect that we saw also uh happening happening in the films um you know especially as time moves on uh one of my favorite film gris is uh john ford's um the big heat right and mm-hmm. um you know Gloria Graham is fantastic in that. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that we'll see sort of like this blurring of what sort of morality do we have here, you know, and what's going on. And I think it's interesting to see as the, the time period pass, um, how things change. Absolutely. So, so then Lothar is, is, I just thought of this from what you said. Um, does, does noir in some ways become the more modern iteration of Western? I don't know. I'm asking that. Uh, not really. Um, I, well, no, okay. again, it depends on what you mean, but it's like, yeah, the word, the word noir is also an interesting one in that it's, um, something that was applied many years later by film critics from France to American stuff. So we're dealing with academic constructs here. Um, right, right. you know, and so what is it? I, I think, I think when we reach the real postmodern era and we get the neo noirs and the stuff to where it's, you know, people are doing more of a smorgasbord, uh, you know, of a little of this and a little of that, and let's shake it up and do something different. I I, I would argue too, and I and again, I'm 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 open to being proven wrong, but I would argue that noir has more of a character connection than it does a genre connection. So so um, westerns. When we look at westerns, you could say sure. Um, you could argue that Gunsmoke has a noir element to it, but Bonanza doesn't, right? right? Or, or yeah. you know, or you could act the Texas Ranger may, but certainly it doesn't when you take a look at, you know, um, 
on King and uh, the our northern yeah, our sure. northern Mountie, right? So there's Yukon, the, yeah. There you got Yukon. That's right. Uh, ch- challenge the Yukon. Yukon. Uh, yeah. You've got so many different varieties of flavors that come with uh, h- how you see this stuff that it can really change in one way or another that way so yeah there's a there's a guy named barton palmer who uh calls noir trans generic because it trans it transcends genre um oh and he has a quote where he talks about and this is where you know makes a good point since it existed through a number of related genres whose most important common threads were a concern with criminality and with social breakdown the genres associated with noir include the crime melodrama the detective film the thriller and the woman's picture in other words, whatever the noir elements in a film noir is, it can be expressed through a number of genres. And okay. that ties into maybe my personal working definition of noir, which is that it is more than a type of plot, genre, or visual style. It is an ontology with a strong philosophy behind it. It has a worldview and different ways of expressing that worldview and trying to operate within it. And that, to me, is what noir is and why it becomes so mercurial, because it's it's a larger umbrella than something as simple as plot structure or even visual style. Yep. I would agree. That's a great that way. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe that's a great place to, uh, to end our, uh, our show for this time. Who's, who's coming up next time. We had, uh, we had our guests last time that and then me. me. Okay. Do you have anything that you definitely know you're bringing? Yeah. And at first, but first I have to say that I, I, I think about five times during this, I said Marlo when I met Sam Spade. So, um, so, if I record just a bunch of Sam Spades, you can fix that in post, right? <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but the reason I say that is because uh, I thought we'd stick to some of the classics and uh, go with Maltese Falcon. Nice. Perfect. Uh, Dashiell Hammett and, Sam, of course, Sam Spade. Yep. Uh, with that next time. Sounds very good. Uh, anything else that you guys want to say before we uh, sign off? I want to – I want to – I did remember the Hitchcock film. So the one where me- Chris Cross is mentioned, it's actually called Strangers on a Train. Gotcha. So, oh, and which that. makes perfect sense, right? So Absolutely. I wonder if, if we find there's a lot more, a lot of, uh, of these, uh, noir stories that have train elements in it. It's very interesting. So <laughs> we'll, we'll have to do it. We'll have to do a train season. We can bring in like Murder on the <laughs> Orient oh, Express and things like that. Yeah. Oh, I love Orient it's Express. Very oh, <laughs> Sonic Echo season 75. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm already right. old enough. Oh That's my god, right. I don't know if I'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, amigos, for uh, for joining us for a little uh, insurance exploration with double indemnity, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Oh, it was amazing. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, thanks Good so choice. much for bringing it, brother. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And now we'll get out of the dark, depressing world of pure noir and have a little fun with some uh, uh, hard-boiled detective fiction and uh, you know the wonderful Maltese Falcon next time. Yes, Woo-hoo. right on. Goodbye, everyone. Good enough. All right. See you, everyone. Take care. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Yeah! 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 Yeah!
amigos! Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. So, yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.